Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. 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 This episode will include TFOS 1192 to 1205, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1192. Story number one. Insurance code section 4917-116. Human Dual Sentience in Case of Corpus Callisum Agenesis Written by Trust me, I just get weird. Two and a half drinks in, at five minutes past ten, in some interspecies drinking spot on the west side of Manhattan that rarely checks IDs at the door, you're just starting to feel a buzz. None of that matters, though. Not the time, not the city bar, and certainly not the jello shot you had half an hour before. The one that'll definitely hit you sometime soon. Because you and Loayo are celebrating. God damn it, and the both of you are gonna have fun! Loayo downs half a glass of his species preferred intoxicant and slams his tumbler down on the bar. He closed some case this week. Something big with the shipping company and the boonies of the asteroid belt. Three things are inevitable. You guess. Death, taxes, and insurance lawyers. So she tells me that's tomorrow me's problem and dumps the entire thing on the boss's desk. You throw back your head and laugh. Liquor robbing you of both volume control and good taste. God damn it, Sarah, you say. God fucking damn it. Laio shakes his head. Yeah, welcome to my world, jerk. I have to work with her. Hey, just, um, that's a problem for tomorrow me. Jesus, mother of God. You chuckle and pick up your glass. I wish I could do that sometimes. Just, hey, that was the other me. Hey, so you can't put me on probation for throwing a plant through Jerry's window last Tuesday. Loayo laughs a bit more than necessary. Yeah, blame the other you. He taps his glass on the table. You know, legally speaking, humans are considered two people. You choke on the drink. Wait, what? You say. Like, uh, the entire species is two people. No. Like every human is two people in one body. Wait, you didn't know about this? Hell no, what the fuck? Don't mess with me, dude. Holy shit, dude. I'm gonna tell you some crap. Okay, one sec. Loayo downs the rest of his drink and slams a hand to the table. An excited gleam in all four of his eyes. I did my senior thesis on this. Holy crap. So in insurance law, humans are put down as two sentient beings in one body, and it's so goddamn stupid. Explain, you say. Please, too drunk for this crap. You might as well hear this tonight. Loayo is a surprisingly good monologuer when drunk. So, there is this case in 2413 or something. Patel vs. Kayalua Life Insurance Co. That was the one that set the precedent for this. But oh boy, get ready for this clusterfuck. So, yeah, back in the 1890s. Wait, uh, 1980s? He drops his head at the table and groans, Ugh, dates are hard. Anyway, there was the surgery that split the brain in two, right? Like right down the middle. And the poor bastard they did it to would be fine. But sometime, crap would go weird. Like one hand was trying to put a shirt on while the other was taking off like, Feck no, dude. So they did some studies and crap, and they found out that the two sides of his brain couldn't talk to each other anymore. So they were acting all weird on their own. Looy shrugs. I don't know, dude. Neuroscience was your thing, but it was really weird. Does that make sense? You almost remember that case. The Corpus Callisotomy. You think it was. You nod. Also, 
So the bureaucrats were going back through the stuff when Earth joined the Galactic Alliance, and someone just decided, crap, we're classifying those dudes as two people, why not? So split-brain patients got put down as two people. And like, no one does that surgery anymore. But here's the thing. The precedent was still done for that to be a thing in a court of law. So this lady, Patel, her wife got the left half of her brain blasted out in a car crash, like right down the middle. Dude, ooh. But she lived. Brain went halsies and she kept kicking. Or at least, she kept kicking on one side. Left side could still move and stuff. So her wife went and argues that she should get her life insurance payout on the lady's policy. Because it was the left side that signed the contract and said her vows and crap. So her wife was technically dead. Don't tell me she won. She fucking won. He groaned. Dude, your job is fucking stupid. Loy smiles with a crab-eating grin. I know, it's awesome. So she wins and a lot of convoluted legal crap happens that there is no way that you would understand. You feel the twinge of offense. Hey, I'm three sheets to the wind right now, but I know you, man. Do you want to repeat a finals week? You concede that point. Finals week was a bona fide disaster. Laoi flashes a smug smile. Thank you. So anyway, now it's stuck in the law that humans are two conscious beings in one head. But you can't tell because they're kept in sync so long that it's functioning like one brain. That's a stupid law. Yeah, I know. But here's the kicker, okay? They tried to overturn it in 2485 or something, and it was like watertight that it would get nixed. But then it turned out that some scientists in 2091 found out that one in every thousand or so humans is born with a split brain. But no one notices because the left side is only the one that can talk or ever says anything important. So the insurance companies just said, feck it and classified all humans as two people to avoid dealing with it on a case-by-case -case basis. He lifts his glass and then realizes it's empty. So yeah, if you want better premiums, you could get a paper marriage to your other brain out in the boonies, and I could get you a couple's plan. Think about it. This is stupid, you think. This is stupid, and you're so done with this crap. Can't you just test for that? I mean, yeah. But do you want to? Oh yeah, I want to. I'd want to know if there's another person up here with me. What if you're the right brain, though? Right brain can't talk, dude. I'm talking. Yeah. Well, how do you know that you're the one talking? Maybe Lefty is in there talking and you're stuck listening in all the time. He waves his fingers in what was meant to be a creepy way. You will never know. You flex your hands under the table, first left and then right. Do you think you controlled the right one, the one you write with? It moved where you wanted it to. But what if you just thought that it was in your control? What if you were just imagining what you needed to feel? What if... Yeah, you hear yourself say, I'll never know. End of story. Story number two. Transcribe of a meeting on human aggression, written by This Is My Phone Though. Thank you all for your time today, and please let me know if there are any problems with the translators. I'd like to present my findings on the inhabitants of Seoul and the relationship with aggression. Contemporary wisdom, which is mostly academic due to the rarity of it manifesting, suggests that aggression is a form of resource management and acquisition in situations where resources are scarce. With Seoul's entrance into the galactic stage, We've seen a great breakthrough in a branch of maths that is deemed game theory. 
which gives us much more insight to how this could have come to be. Humans, as some of you may be aware, did not receive sentience from the Creator. Our planets were seeded and cultivated until we were ready to harvest ourselves and join our brothers and sister species amongst the stars. We always had plenty, and barring a planetary upset, both are as perfect as the day our planets were blessed by the Creator. Each of us unique and designed with a purpose. The humans, however, experienced something they've called uh, evolution, along with every single species in their solar system. They are purely the result of natural selection process, which we can now recognize as a source of corruption and imperfect worlds. Their world is not imperfect, as it was never perfect in the first place. Their world is a roiding pot of chaos and suffering, and that has bred in as each species a certain amount of coping mechanisms to survive. Aggression is one of them, along with play and pack for familial bondings. Evolution is not the creator, but the tinkerer. Where the creator works from the top down to design each system that builds the whole, the tinkerer tweaks, adds, subtracts, and repurposes each generation as the pressures outside dictate. Many of the human aggressive habitats are not connected to the resource acquisition that gave birth to aggression, and is merely a repurposed response to various stimulus. We've studied and been given resources that show humans express aggressions in leisurely activity as well as towards their own infants. This aggression towards the helpless has been given the oxymoronic name of cute aggression, and we've been assured that it is a positive emotion. They currently theorize that the Tinkerer gave them this response to encourage play with the young, which in turn develops mental and physical fitness. With all this information, I would like to suggest that we remove the aggression sensors on the human translation colors entirely. I believe that while the automated termination function on translators have undoubtedly prevented countless tragedies in our past and contributed to galactic harmony, the translators are simply unable to account for the alien emotions of a never-perfect world. And our efforts will end in the genocide of the sole sapient creation of the Tinkerer. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1193. Story number one. The Multiverse Drifter, written by Rosie013. I do not know how many different worlds I have visited anymore. Only that it has been many, probably thousands, since I was first abducted by them. That's right, I may look like I belong, but I'm not really from here. Or anywhere nearby, relatively speaking. To you, I might as well be an alien, although you wouldn't know it at a glance. My home was a place like this once. I blend in on account of being from similar place in existence. But I'm not a real Indian. I'm not like them at all. They are something far beyond what our minds can possibly hope to grasp. This place is nice enough, I suppose, but it's the little things that remind me that I am far from where I'm started. Building slightly out of place, a different taste in the water, colors of the earth faded where they were once bright in my memories. This world is one of many parallel worlds, each subtly different from the next. Each one is almost like the home I remember, but none of them are 
There is nothing concrete enough to convince authorities. If I were ever stupid enough to take my claims to them, they would call me crazy, mad, affected by the sun, all the while being totally unaware that this is not the same sun that I was born under. I doubt that I'll see my real home ever again. The first few times I tried to accept my displacement to naturalize myself so that I could live some kind of life, despite my unusual circumstances, but they decided otherwise. My peace was not allowed to be. Every so often they would abduct me again and drop me into a new place, a new world, never one that I had visited before. Maybe there is some kind of twisted logic to the kind of world they decide to send me to, or what my purpose is in each one, but they have never made their intentions known to me. Is it some kind of test? Am I repeatedly fading or succeeding? Why me to begin with? There must have been a better candidate to start with other than myself. I do not know. As I grow old, I feel more kinship with my abductors than to any locals met my travels. But still, they do not communicate with me, share their intentions or secrets with me. I do not know if returning across the barriers between worlds is even possible. I was first made aware of them when I was little, when I was snatched away from my brothers and sisters by a moment of panic and choked on non-breath. Family cannot even remember what any of them looked like anymore. Sometimes I looked at my reflection in the hopes of jogging my memory with the familiarity of my features. And there was nothing. I hope that they are living their best lives without me. They put me in a small, featureless cell, rounded walls that warped light had dazzled and confused me. I was so scared. Eventually, after I had begun to lose track of time, I was deposited in a familiar-looking place. But it wasn't home. And that first time, I was alone. Have you ever wondered how eerie it is to live in your own abandoned home? Everything that I expected to be there was, except for company. Before long, I was abducted again, and I didn't know whether to be scared or relieved. I thought I was going home. And I was sort of right. I went to a new version of my home, and it was crowded full of strangers. I cried out my relief and told them my story loudly, tired from unknown months alone. The locals didn't believe me, called me, touched in the head, shunned me. Some few but believed me. They knew I spoke the truth, but they tried to silence me out of fear, lest I attract their attention once more. I was battered, nearly crippled by the next abduction saved my life. It was a hard lesson, but I learned to keep my mouth shut. I explored new worlds, some barren and empty, some full of strange things that reminded me of home. I made meaningless banter with the locals, tried to pretend they didn't exist for a time, lived a simple, peaceful life. The abductions were always the same. And though they were uncomfortable, I lost my fear of them. Whoever was doing this clearly did not mean me harm in a physical sense of the word, at least. Eventually, I came to recognize the signs, the subtle clues that linked many of the worlds that I traveled. The oddly similar landscapes, the construction and layouts of buildings, even the flavors of local foods. 
It was different every time, but somehow the same. Like a million different worlds were all masquerading, there's the same world. It was deja vu all over again, around every corner I looked. I wasn't physically traveling at all, I was being moved between parallel worlds. I didn't know what to do with that revelation, to be honest. I still don't, but it gave me my life meaning as my curiosity would start to compare the differences more and more, until I became the traveler who you see today. Why am I telling you this? No, not to scare you. I suppose you could say, legacy. I wish to be remembered. What? I'm not quite that old. That's not what I meant. I'm telling you, because they are coming for me again. I know the signs, can feel it in my bones. Regardless of whether they send me from here, I won't be coming back. I don't know what I expect you to do with my story, to be honest. I don't particularly care. All that matters is that you've heard it before I'm taken once more. Now, go. They're almost here. Troy leaned over the empty tank and scrubbed at a particularly stubborn patch of algae clinging to the floor joint. He loved his exotic pets, but it was such a pain to have a clean the tank on a regular basis. If only he had settled for goldfish, he would have only had to clean like three times a year, tops. No matter the pride and joy he had as these exotic beauties more than made up for the effort needed. Speaking of maintenance, he would have to replace the gravel again soon. This latest brand had faded much more quickly than he had hoped. Then he could restage and fill the aquarium again, and get his brightly colored pets out of the small plastic bags that served as the temporary enclosures. Troy's eyes wandered over to the fish bags and hurried up his scrubbing a little. He had a new one traded from the club, and he was keen to see the majestic beauty swim his setup. End of story. Story number two was from a writing prompt. Create a pamphlet for alien captains unfamiliar with the concepts of sleep to help them understand what their new human requires. Communication number 19403526, Alpha Priority. To all sapient employing humans as crew, read this immediately. To all sapients transporting humans as passengers, post this on all pertinent information boards. In all cases, ensure that your crew is familiar with the contents of this communication. This is imperative. Part 1. Human and Sleep Members of the sapient species self-identified as human have a requirement to spend a certain amount of time in an unconscious semi-vegetative state. This is similar to the biannual hibernation of the Hagroth, except that it takes place on a daily basis taking up a significant fraction of any single day-night cycle. This is not negotiable. Suggestions that humans just think that they need to sleep, and if they really tried they could get over it, had been met by humans with very response from wordless incredulity through to manic laughter. Research laughter, if you're unfamiliar with the concept, all the way up to and including physical violence. Note that the latter invariably took place as a result of their sleep being deliberately disturbed. Do not disturb a human who is asleep except under the most dire of circumstances. If it is not under the most dire of circumstances, then once the human becomes aware of the situation, it will become a dire circumstance. 
Just don't do it. Part 2. Duration of sleep period. Roughly one-third of any given day-night cycle will be taken up with sleep. If the human is well-rested and has a comfortable place to lie down, they may be able to get in with less. But don't count on it. In addition, humans are able to go without sleep, if they choose to, in order to complete a required task. But the longer they maintain a sleepless state, their brains become more and more disarranged. Stimulants may maintain them for a brief amount of time. But do not be deceived. They will need sleep. See below about coffee. A human who has overrun their normal sleep period will require more sleep before they are fit for duty. Or even contact with other sapiens. Just let them sleep. Your crew will be happier for it. Part 3. The Importance of Coffee Coffee is a uniquely human beverage. Humans consume it both to stay awake longer in order to complete important tasks and to give themselves a wake-up when they first arise from sleep. The active ingredient is caffeine, so do not try and drink it. Where members of the Zundercult touch tiny amounts of the powder in their tongues to bring out hallucinogenic trances, humans drink it by the liter. If a human is working and claims to need more coffee, ensure that they have more coffee. Do not get between a human and their coffee. Just don't. Note that coffee is not a substitute for sleep. The effect runs out eventually, and the humans will require sleep eventually. Part 4. Effects of Lack of Sleep If a human is prevented from sleeping, the first effects are drowsiness. Their eyes will tend to close, they will sit or lie down wherever they can, and they will become unresponsive. If left unattended, they will slip into sleep mode. If prevented from doing this, they'll become either disoriented or aggressive, or both. It has been said that a human without proper sleep is akin to a bear with a sore head. This is not inaccurate. Look up bears. Humans have been known to lock themselves into compartments and even swear at superior officers if they were denied their daily ration of sleep. It is best to let them get to it. Part 5 Conclusion. Look, not everyone knows much about humans. They are, frankly, a weird species. However, they're also a good species to have at your side when pirates come calling. I managed to frighten off a ship simply by putting my chief engineer on screen. When they realized there was a human on board, I may have suggested that he was my head of security. You have never seen a bunch of sapiens crap themselves so fast. So it really is a good idea to keep them happy. If they say that they need to get some sleep, let them. A resting bunk is ideal for the purpose. The lack of noise and light is also useful. Also, get a coffee machine. Trust me, your human will thank you. Communication ends. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1194. Story number one. Written by Uridon. Another way home. The methods to travel faster than light are as varied as species in the universe. Of the dozens of alien species that have achieved the feat, no two are precisely the same. Oh, there are some that are similar. The Grenelec and the Nubricant both have a variation of a pulse drive. We have an array system similar to the Rurunroar, and the Kalth have a tricol engine which functions much like the Brindol Enketh engine. The humans are unique that they use many different tribes from different species. They had 
technically created their own original design, of course. It was completely unusable in the long term, but it had function, and that was enough to earn them the right to travel the stars alongside us and the others. We were excited, of course. It's always exciting to have new species break free from the limits of light. We'd been monitoring them for years, expecting just this. We had translators ready, diplomats who had been studying their various cultures, quite a shock that, standing by uncloaked vessels and congratulatory displays waiting at their intended destination. Nobody was expecting the chaos that came from their, uh, fissure system. It would tear a hole in space, creating a wormhole of sorts. It had been theorized by other species, of course, but the humans were the first to actually create it, and by the council decree, they were the last as well. I was with senior diplomat Gurgotha, watching the feed as the humans created a crack in the universe and then drove into it. We were focused on the miraculous sight of the vessel flying through an open space and vanishing. A cheer went up across the bridge as an electric crackle formed in front of us, and then it died as we saw what lay inside. For a moment, none of us spoke. I couldn't turn away from the sight of undulating flesh. It was writhing and flowing and sloughing. I felt my stomach squiver at the sight of it, but it was nothing compared to the sensation of nausea that swept over, not just me, but the entire bridge as the flesh began to bulge and distort, the human vessel clawing its way to freedom. Tendrils of flesh and muscle and bone mounted over the ship as it began to breach the surface. For a moment, it was all we could see, but all the pressure of that horrible, twisting flesh could not hold it. The flesh gave, the muscle tore, the sinew snapped, and bones cracked and shattered as the humans burst free. Scraps of the terrible flesh hanging from the vessel as it sped from the portal. The vessel was draped in blood and fluids. From the frame of the vessel was dented and bent. It hurtled past us, apparently blind and desperate to escape. It had more sense than us. We were stuck frozen at the sight before us. We didn't begin to react until the flesh began to mount up around the edge of the portal, flowing free beyond it. And then, it began to reach for what was closest to it. Mass! The granulate vessel had just begun to move and the seething mass grasped it. The flesh wrapped around it, began to cover it, and began to drag it back all at the same time. The bridge descended into chaos as more tendrils of flesh began to reach out for others, for our ship. Beside me, the ambassador's until system failed from the horror of the scene before him. I scarcely noticed him collapsed. The captain was shouting orders, the crew was panicking, and all I could think was that there was no way that I could look away. The Granelec vessel began to hemorrhage escape pods, some of them struggling unsuccessfully to burst free from the flesh that had mounted all over them. Others found smaller tendrils reaching out for them as well. Alerts began to blare. The Kalth were panicking and had turned into direct collision course for our vessel, even as the Holneck and Brindle-powered weapons. The Granelec vessel's center collapsed, almost splitting the vessel in two. Then all of it went to the Great Hells as the Cath vessel slammed into us, this central bridge crashed into our engines, leaving us dead in the sea, while they left themselves blind and leadishless.
I was thrown to the floor and struggled to rise, touching my head and finding blood. The lights went to emergency, but the screen remained up. Beams began to slice into the flesh, cutting massive gouges into the tendril that was towing the beleaguered Danelec vessel to its doom. Missile slammed into the central mass of the portal mouth, sending out great gouts of ichor. It might as well have been a child throwing leaves. The wounds healed, and more tendrils reached out. One of the snaking limbs swatted a missile, losing only its tip before slamming into the advancing brindle vessel. A moment later, great explosions rocked the ship, its missiles exploding at tubes openings. The hull neck vessel burned the tentacle that reached for it, and began slicing anything that came near it. At the same time, firing its engines in reverse to withdraw. Our own ship was seized, and I barely held myself aloft. Only one vessel was advancing under its own power towards the gaping maw. The humans, their vessel had turned while we weren't watching, and now it was driving towards the rip it had created in the universe with as much fervor as it had when fleeing from it. Dozens of tentacles grasped it, seizing it, trying to crush it, but it pulled through them, electricity surging over the front of the ship as it powered the fissure system. The ship's engines cut out, its reverse boosters flaring as it fired the shot into the center of that hideous mass. The colossus of flesh shuddered, then convulsed. The outer edge of the crack sealed, Great spurts of blood and fluid flying into space as the flesh was cut from the unspeakable realm. Our ship was whipped around like a toy, the inertial dampeners barely holding. And then it all ceased, but the twitching. The mass that had forced itself out of the portal relaxed, letting slip the parts of the Grenelic vessel that had barely avoided an unthinkable fate. Around us, ships pulled themselves free from the tentacle that had been dragging them. Incoming message from the human vessel, audio only. The watchstander turned, looking at Krokotha, only to find his corpse. He reddened in shock, but then found me. I nodded, and he patched the audio through. Alien vessels, fissure reads as closed. Repeat, fissure reads as closed. I think we managed to seal it before any ships were dragged inside. There was a pause in the transmission, requesting alternate method to return home. Then, of story. Story number two. Sports Day, written by Redshift Razor. Jeremy, I hear that your children are soon to be participating in a sports day. You must be rejoicing at finally having the opportunity to see which of your offspring are the strongest, no? I must ask, will the weaker offspring be cold normally, or will you just let the strongest offspring consume them? Uh, well, why do you have that son? Blue, what the fuck are you on about? Have I offended you in some way, Jeremy? I'm merely asking which one of your offspring you would least like to see devoured. It is not really insulting, right? Have you perhaps considered that I don't want to see any of my offspring devoured? Oh, come off it, Jeremy. We can't always be so naive. Most parents are ready to sacrifice the whole clutch by the second day save for a few exceptional infants. So, out with it, which of your kids is your favorite? Blue, I think there's been a massive misunderstanding here. Sports Day is an event where your child competes against other children in their class, not- What? 
They compete against other clutches as well. Tell me, Jeremy, how many winners are there in a sports day festival? Well, there, there's three, but you, you'll misunderstand. Three! Three offspring out of how many clutches? Zarlax almighty, you humans are hardcore. No wonder you guys have high stabber. Anyone who even slightly fell behind was devoured. Blue, uh, we don't devour offspring. Well, they'll be culled either way. Tell me, Jeremy, do the fabled human rights not apply to your offspring? Blue, just let me speak. Some human rights don't apply to offspring, like freedom to mur and freedom to live. You didn't answer my question. Of which offspring would you prefer to survive your hellhole on the coming of each ceremony? You know what? You're completely right. I guess sacrificing a vast majority of our children is slightly cruel. I guess, but live and let live, you know. That's what the Galactic Assembly is built off of, right? To judge other species, other traditions, such as brutally murdering the vast majority of children, would be hypocritical. Especially considering that we do the same. Jeremy Judia. Excuse me? He's my son, the one I want to win sports day. Ah. Of course, it would be the one named after yourself. You humans do have a narcissistic streak, after all. Though, considering what it took to reach adulthood, I don't blame you guys one bit. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 1195 Story number one. Imagine, written by Tannen Bananen. Breathe in, breathe out. The entanglement radio crackled. Hermes Actual, this is Jackson Station. You are go for departure. My small shuttle shuddered as it left the inertial dampness of the station behind. Breathe in, breathe out. Hermes, your diagnostics are green across the board. Preparations are complete. Controls have been remotely tethered. Stand by for countdown. I could feel my heart beating hard in my chest, pushing against the massive lead vest that covered my upper torso. Fight! All flight would do me no good here. Strapped into the cockpit of a shuttle barely larger than my E-4 dormitory on Jackson. Of course, my innermost reptilian amygdaloid brain begged to temper. Adrenaline coursed through my veins. Breathe in, breathe out. Thirty seconds. There's something about the UN Space Force that always appealed to me as a kid. Patrolling the home and orbital transfers between Earth and the Martian territories in a state-of-the-art interceptor. Kicking pirate rear all day. Like yes. What nobody told me was that you probably won't get your own interceptor. And that generally, space life is boring. Breathe in. Breathe out. Fifteen seconds. Orbital adjustments take weeks to complete. And our old Millie G ion drives... Scrubbing decks in microgravity becomes tedious really fast. Even the view of series gets pretty old pretty quick. Everything looks, feels, smells and tastes like cold metal. Tensions between the current political quagmire, between the superpowers of Earth, Luna and Mars become a hassle for the mixed crews in Jackson. The constant threat of interplanetary war and mandatory reconscription keeping everyone on their toes. And... Possibly, most of all. You can only eat the same crappy, gelatinous, hydroponic garbage and synth meat stew so many times before you'd much rather punch through your laminated window and taste the vacuum of space. Breathe in, breathe out. 
Ten seconds. But if you stay, maybe pass a few dozen more aptitude tests, listen to your CO, and prove that you're a good wiggle soldier boy. That's when you start to get some perks. For example, you just might five, get a chance to four, drive something three, to perhaps be really two, fecking one, cool, blink. Breathe in, breathe out. I am not even going to pretend to understand what conjoined loopholes in the aberration that is post-LHC physics allowed the eggheads back on Earth to grind out this method of space-piercing nonsense. Talked about extra spatial dimensions or something. But it worked. I saw a flash brighter than anything I'd ever seen, and then it was over. Though my skin already felt mildly sunburnt. Through the spots in my vision, I watched as the space around my shuttle rippled back into the inky darkness, save for a single, somewhat bright spot in my rear-view mirror. So, oh, and I was about 80,000 clicks from an enormous blue marble, quietly rotating in the cold twilight. Huh, so that's Neptune. Truth be told, it was not a bad view for the most distant place humanity had ever traveled. Off to the left, I saw a couple distant pinpricks of light and the tiny pearl named Triton. The research outpost must have been expecting me, at least. The entanglement radio gave off some quiet static. I keyed in, utilizing my best civvy pilot voice. I even cupped my hand over the mic for added authenticity. Oh, Jackson, y'all really need to park me some sunscreen next time. A little toasty up here. I could hear an important-sounding papers being thrown up into zero-tree confetti through the roaring round of applause and cheering from back in series. They were proud of what they'd just accomplished. And honestly, despite being just a dumb test pilot from New Nebraska who happened to be good at following orders and signing paperwork, I was pretty proud too. I just traveled over four billion kilometers in the blink of an eye without getting sheared into atom-sized pieces. As a few research vessels stationed at Triton all scrambled to collect me, for a moment I felt the sanguine shred of hope, of peace. Perhaps there was still a chance for us, hidden way out there, amongst the boundless seas of sparse starlight. A chance for mankind to come together and take the universe by storm. To finally answer the ancient question that has postulated under the gentle light of those same stars an eternity ago. We only had to imagine a better way. End of story. Story number two. Defiance in small form. Written by a glass of whiskey. Kill them all, but save their lives. Was the director that had gone out before the invasion. With the blessed weapons, it was their duty to bless primitive species. The advanced ones put up too much of a fight. A simple shoot and then eternal bliss. Each species was different, but pleasure was all the same. They knew that they would be blessed at the end, but now they had a duty to uphold, as they massacred the humans throughout the town. Marching along the streets, he felt as the first prophets must have felt, delivering blessings to all. Behind him, the now saved and blessed humans lay down, shaking, their mind filled with ecstasy from now until forever until their next lives. 
An entire army of primitives, nothing before one of them, since they had the righteousness and blessings of false fields on their side. Forward soldiers, forwards! Deliver them from their wretched existence and bring them into the fold. His comrades had spread out through the village, and now most of it was blessed, and evident by the smoke pillars rising up against the sky. Almost all the village had been blessed, but there was one house left. He walked through the door. The frame bulged under the power of his force field. With it, no primitive could even get close, unless he chose to approach them. I have come to bless all. The standard greeting when entering another's abode. Primitives or not, standards must be upheld. Please, don't kill my mommy. The tiny creature before him shook where it stood with tears dripping from its eyes. She can't run. Do not worry, little one. Only blessings will be given today. Poor creature. Can't distinguish between eternal bliss and death. Well, that was why they were there after all. He reached out to pat her. Soon enough, everything will be better. Eternal bliss awaits. The shaking and the tears stopped. Finally, a creature that had seen reason. I will just bless you with my weapon and all will be well. Just stand there and... Pain! The ultimate enemy protruded from his chest. When he looked down, a knife's handle sat in it still vibrating from the force of the stabbing. You're not gonna hurt my mommy. The little creature was crying no more. Defiant shone on its face. I, I have come to... The blue blood filled his lungs and mouth, each breath being harder than the one before. This was the promised end. Soon her brethren come along and bless him. Even if he would fall, his soul would be set free. Eternity in bliss. No more pain. He let the weapon go and collapsed down onto the floor, breathing hurt so much. When he laid face down in a pool of his own blood, just let it be over. The little girl took his arm and dragged him bit by bit towards the other room. As he got to the edge, the little girl released him, and his eyes could see the terrible scene inside. His brethren spread across the floor, dead. The little girl's eyes had a dangerous glimmer to them. No one will hurt my mommy. She stench of gasoline filled his nostrils. Oh, no, not burning. Anything but burning. He had not been blessed yet. Did the creature not know what she was doing? The little one, please bless me. The little girl had stopped dragging him and was scanning the weapon that he had dropped. Yes, please. No. The little girl picked up the gun and dragged it towards another room. Another pile, he realized, must be inside. When she returned, she was carrying a matchstick at its box. Why? Because you dummies hurt mummy. She struck the match and it broke. Three more times he had to suffer the angst before the flame was lit. B please, B bless. Coughing with a sickening wet sound escaped his throat as his voice filled with blood. The little girl dropped the matchstick and fire roared 
quickly enveloping the entire gasoline-entrenched room, including a bit of the girl's shirt that caught fire. Ah, stupid fire, she said, as she backed away to a safer distance while hitting it like a misbehaving teddy bear. Needs to get mummy. At those words, the little human turned around and walked towards the stairs. As the flames started to lick his body, he saw the little one drag a body out from under the hiding place beneath the stairs. A lifeless corpse of an adult female human was difficult to drag for the little girl, as she stumbled onwards towards the back door. When the corpse had been dragged out all the way outside the house and outside his view, the flames started to burn his flesh. The licking flames covered his body, causing pain to sear through it. Unable to move a finger, with one last glance upwards, he saw the girl, standing in the opening, just watching him burn. A little smile covered her face, like a demon from another world, as he was engulfed by the flames. End of story. Bales from Outer Space, 1196. Story number one. Chef Yu's Chinese Cuisine, written by I.R. Good at Writing. If there's one constant among sapient species in the galaxy, it's a love for food. Every time a race on some faraway planet is discovered, one of the earliest things asked at first contact are the details of their diet. Members all across the Galactic Union sit at the edge of their seats, praying to their gods that the palate of the new race is compatible with their own. Once the data is made widely available, suitable species swarm their Galactic GU offices, desperate to be one of the lucky few to take part in the cultural exchange program on the new planet. The economics of local food joints skyrocket while the visitors stay with the race. After the discovered species is prepared to join the GU, they are given FTL technology and migrate across the galaxy, taking their cuisine with them. When the hysteria dies down and the newness fades, the species' food usually falls into obscurity and joins the billions of other restaurants in the galaxy. And then the humans were discovered. First contact went along as planned. Dates and locations were set up for cultural exchange zones. The first aliens came to Earth's cultural and were met with mixed results. Some locations had bland, tasteless food, while others were rich in favorite style. Each zone's food was so different from the next that the visitors felt like they were eating from different species diets, depending on where they were. Visitors on Earth thought this diversity would be the highlight of first contact until a group of Iverans discovered a restaurant called Chef Yu's Chinese Cuisine. That in itself wasn't unusual. One of the cultural exchange zones was located in a political territory known as China. What stuck out were two words written in bold beneath the name, We Deliver. The Iverians itched their antlers in confusion. Deliver? The group went inside and asked the human at the front, like delivering packages and boxes. The human made a sound that registered in the translators as a laugh and gave them a menu. When you guys get home, call the number at the front and tell us what you want to eat and where you're staying. Each Iovaran looked at each other in confusion, but pounded their fists against their chests in courtesy and left. Later that day, Broken Tooth, the elder Iveran, hovered over the menu and a primitive communication device. 
He stood in the house dedicated to his people's delegates, among a circle of each tribesmen. Each one stared at the two objects with intensity, eager to unravel the mystery of Weep Lover. Broken Tooth pressed a button combination that matched the numbers on the menu and brought the gadget to his ear. Over the next hour and a half, the aliens of Chef used Chinese cuisine to explain every item on the menu with extreme detail, down to the genetic makeup and evolutionary history of each plant and animal. When they were satisfied, the tribesmen passed around the phone, each selecting their meal of choice. Exhausted, the human on the other line said that the food would be there in a bit over an hour. The Iovarans paced around the house with anxiety and uncertainty in their hearts. Brokentooth couldn't help but join his tribesmen in speculation. The idea that food is brought directly to your house was interesting, but impractical, he concluded. How were they supposed to make the food when it came? They weren't even given instructions. Was extensive culinary knowledge a basic part of human evolution somehow? It was the only agreement that the tribesmen could reach. There was a knock at the door. Opening it revealed a human holding a mountain of white boxes and a brown paper bags. He stared at the Iovarans in awe. <clears throat> Here's your order. Uh, that, that'll be $172.90. Broken Tooth counted the exact amount and handed it to the human, a fistful of paper and coin currency. Thank you, he said. But, um... How do we make the food from these ingredients? Oh, um, the food's already in there. The human pointed to the bags and the boxes and one of the tribesmen took from him. He lingered in the doorway with his outstretched palm facing the sky, clearly expecting the aliens to do something else. Broken Tooth itched his antlers and the human made a face that didn't register on any translator. He marched to his vehicle and drove off. Broken Tooth redirected his attention on the tribesman holding the order. You there, open up those boxes. The young Ivaron nodded and took the bags to the table. Everyone in the house crowded around him and held their breaths. He opened the white box. Steam leaked out from the opening and danced to the ceiling. What the humans called white rice was packed into the container. It was ready to eat, as if they were already ordered it at the restaurants. By the great beyond, open another. The gathering was incredulous at the eye of Aaron dug into a bag and opened another box. The second cloud of steam escaped from the box, revealing the contents. Chicken, coated in an orange glaze. Light danced and glittered off each piece of meat. An appetizing aroma filled the nostrils of each alien. The Iovarans released a roar of joy, like they just won a great battle, each one hugging another and jumping in pure excitement. Food! Someone shouted, delivered to the comfort of my own home! Even the normally stoic elder wore a grin from ear to ear. Proud of the humans, such a novel idea, yet undoubtedly revolutionary. Word of this incredible service spread amongst alien and cultural exchange zones across Earth within hours. Restaurants that delivered received thousands of curious calls from alien visitors within hours. It wasn't long before rumors drifted around the Jew of an unthinkable culinary invention discovered on Earth. An entire fleet, complete with dreadnoughts and a battlecruiser, 
was deployed to the planet with the sole purpose of preventing the hordes of citizens from breaking into cultural exchange zones to find out for themselves. Due to increasing pressure from the public, the Grand Senate of the Galactic Union was forced to bring humanity into the fold and give them FTL faster than any species in GU history. In under a decade, every major city and space station in the galaxy contained a chef-used Chinese cuisine or Jimmy's Pizza at Subs, or some other food delivery restaurant from Earth. Species whose pilots couldn't eat human food scrambled to copy the innovation in response to the mass rights and protests. Humans did not fade into obscurity like most new species, but became one of the wealthiest races in the GU. For eons to come, they were revered as the heroes and innovators due to the invention of delivery. End of story. Story number two. St. Patrick's Battalion, written by you sure I'm not a robot. Earth fell hard, but fall it did. We surrendered our colonies after endless death and orbital outrage to you. We sold our sons to your vicious wars. I'm not proud of it, but we had run out of options when your vicious galaxy came calling. You burned the damn sea, something we never thought was a thing. Oxygen got really short. You controlled our atmosphere, and we paid you bastards to let us breathe. Today, we have had enough. We are the 82nd Irish, conscripts all sent into whatever hell you bastards choose. Today, we will fall before we inflict this on another people. A knife can turn in your hand. I've called my men and we have fucking shot anyone who disagreed. Crude, but that's your system, right? This world is defended. Consider that's your only warning. We have lost our world, but we have stolen your weapons. Erg Gobrak, Colonel Riley. The Overwatcher General was perplexed. Find me someone who understands the human conscripts. It appears that the humans are unhappy. And find out who is supposed to be in charge of our expansion on this bull. Also, find out why my translator doesn't translate that last sentence. By the time the Galactic Supreme Forces on the ground had a chance to react, the Irishmen on the ground had breached every bunker, supported by the locals with modern weapons. It wasn't a massacre, but it was a lesson on how intel was supposed to work. A single squad had refused to stand a kill order, and now the whole army was in chaos. Get our droids down there and instruct them to kill everything. This cannot be allowed to stand... Riley stood proudly with his co-conspirator, a short, very uncle. Lads, uh, we hold the planet. Everyone that wants to argue the point is dead, and our friends are armed the best that I could give them. Knowing them, they won't be happy to lose. They will learn to make a point. None of us are getting out alive, since they have several thousand machines about to drop on us. Peck it. We can came to kill someone, and these poor bastards never laid a hand on us. Kill anything that lands and keep the flag flying, boys. Someone has to know that we didn't sell out to these greedy, murderous bastards. Broadcast everything and paint this fucking planet green with engine oil. It wasn't 
a massacre since it took three waves of droids to crush the rebel mess on the planet. Far too many creatures had disappeared with serious weapons, remaining a hidden threat for the future. The good news was that the rogue humans had been captured as they had attempted to regroup. Public execution was the obvious sentence, an appropriate demonstration of the power of the Empire. We hanged his men first as he watched. He refused to concede his error. We hanged his friends, and he said nothing. Then we hanged him to utter silence from our men. This may have been a mistake. In the dull light of dawn, the locals carefully remembered their training, assembling the parts. The strangers had left them all their weapons, turning out their pockets before they could be taken. Today, they would show that their sacrifice was not worthless. He stood no more than four feet from hairy toe to helmeted head, but he called himself Riley. Ah! The men began feeding the tubes of surprise while the green banner flew behind him, carrying a simple message. The explosions began immediately, mortars flying into the troops. We have lost the local space as the conscripts turn on us. The Empire has turned to dirt, and I don't understand why. We are still... The explosion ended his conversation forever. Tales from Outer Space 1197 Story number one. When you put a mechanic in a majocracy. Written by Cal Bynes. It wasn't really a single war. There was a war between the us elves and dwarves where they fought on both sides or later joined with both of us to repel the draconian hordes. Then, after the adventuring into portals they helped create to see other realms, and fighting tooth and nail against those who tried to use them to invade. They never singularly took a side, however, all of them having a different reason or goal in their battle, or their job, or in what they found to bring joy. Now, however, they are rare, not necessarily extinct, but needing time to recover. In their ferocious spirit, they faltered, their numbers beginning to fall after decades upon decades of war after war. It was odd, but almost all species, like those who would invade through the great portals, the dragons, once hungry for gold, showing rare compassion. The same rare compassion that humans had given to them after they had fought back against them and won. Those who didn't wish to give that compassion were coerced by the rest of the species to give it. So, they were left alone, and we left one another alone for the most part. However, even in small numbers, humans don't seem to like that, being left alone, even if for their own good, naturally bringing attention to themselves which was seemingly the destiny of the human I tell tales of today. The gods lazily sorted through the carts of people, slowly moving in and out of the gates and processing them, cautiously looking over the crowd at the small commotion happening near the backside of the line. One of the gods running down and coming back up excitedly. It's human! I thought there weren't any on this side of the kingdom! The younger god exclaimed. Well, why didn't you bring them up here? They have proper rights to skip the line, one of the other gods asked. He didn't want to. He said he wasn't going to cut in front of everyone, the younger one said. They are usually the odd sort. Well, let's hurry it up then. See what he's here for. 
Another god said, leading all the gods as they quickened the pace, making near record time as they neared the humans' place in line. Hello there, friend. What brings you to this place? The first god asked. Just moving to somewhere different, all, the human said, leaning over the cart and looking wistfully into the city. All right, we just need your name and occupation, if you have one for records purposes. The second guard said, putting up a notepad and a quill. Oliver Smith, mechanic, Oliver said, the guards nodding and directing him inward. The guards waited until he left, and one leaned over to another. What the hell's a mechanic? The youngest one asked. Not a clue. The others responded. It was later that day when Oliver walked into my office. And besides the novelty of meeting a human, it was fairly a simple encounter. He inquired about the possibility of getting some custom enchantments and where to go to purchase a small building. It wouldn't be till later that week when we would meet again. Welcome to the Invarious Emporium, Oliver. What are you in for? I asked. I was uh, wondering what spells you might have that can create a tiny bit of fire, preferably something low intensity, Oliver asked. Well, I have a few. What would you be needing it for? I asked, figuring it was something for a fireplace or something of the sort. Could you come down to my shopper? It would be easier to explain there, Oliver asked. Sure, I said. It would be a nice stretch, and it would be nice to see the human shop for the first time in God knows how long. I entered the shop and immediately was hit with a wave of smoky air as his eyes watered. Apologies, I can't really fix too much myself. You get used to it after a little while, Oliver said as I followed him further into the shop. Definitely an acquired taste, I would guess. I'm not sure you exactly need a fire spell, however. It seems that you have enough here already. I joked as he gave a slight laugh back. Well, <laughs> it's best to show you here. Um, put these in, Oliver said, handing over a pair of earplugs. All right, I said, slightly concerned. For someone who was less inclined towards magic, earplugs were an odd piece of equipment to have on hand when not dealing with the monsters that would necessitate them. Oliver gave a thumbs up to make sure I had them in and pulled a small tubular object from his coat and raised it towards the target at the far end of the wall. A moment later, pulling the trigger as a loud bang echoed throughout the room. I will admit, my reaction was not the most wizardly, I'll say, but it's not every day that a human makes an explosion come out of nowhere. Oliver motioned for me to take out the earbuds as he put the weapon away. So, um, the problem is for me to make that fire. I would use gunpowder, right? Oliver said. Yes, it's like a cannon that was made into a hand size, I responded incredulously. Well, yeah, that's where I got the inspiration. But obviously, when gunpowder gets wet, I can't exactly fire, Oliver said. Well, yes, that would make sense, I said. So, when I was thinking, instead of having to load up all sorts of powder into it, I enchanted the gun so to make a small bit of fire where the bullet is and put the powder in the bullet. Then, the gun can even fire when it gets wet, Oliver stated. I could definitely try it. It would take a few days, but not too costly, as it should be a simple spell, I said, still in a little bit of shock as I rambled off my spiel on autopilot. All right, lovely to work with you, Mr. Evnaveris, Oliver said, reaching out and shaking my hand. I walked back to my home slash business, deep in thought. The invention was extremely clever, I had to admit. This human, however, was so casual about it. 
Little did I know this would only be the beginning of a long and chaotic story of Oliver Smith, the simple human mechanic living in a majocracy. End of story. Story number two. A piece of cake written by a glass of whiskey. John, do you remember that cake you gave me the recipe for? It had truly been delicious. Say what you want about humans, but they do know their cooking. His friend had been so helpful and provided the recipe for it. Unfortunately, it also doubled as a coded message. How did it go? Go? Wasn't it a joke? Look, three cups of flour, a pinch of salt, a tablespoon of baking powder, and half a pint of beer, amongst other things. Yeah... So, what does any of that even mean? Precisely what is written. How can this be confusing? All right, then. How large is a cup? Well, it's 100th cubic foot. His intense stare did not detect any hints of a smile. He dared a quick peek at the human's feet. Right. Whatever. He could test that out for himself. A rough guess would probably take him close enough. So, a pinch of salt. What's a pinch? You know, you take your two fingers together, and then you have a pinch. John, dear friend, I don't have thugs. Just take a bit of salt, then. It's not that big of a deal. Right, a bit, of course. Clearly a tad would be too much. Fine, what about those teaspoons? Yes? Your species have a truly fascinating collection of teaspoons, of all designs, shapes, and sizes. Oh, that's easy. Just take a normal one. What precisely does that mean, look? They are clearly defined. The translator should have some idea about that. It's broken. Keep saying that you have two different standard sizes for teaspoons. We do, but they're close enough, so it doesn't really matter. Why? You know, history. He shrugged his shoulders, as if the standards just happened to pile up over time. Fine. It's the last one. Pint. Come on. I can't be that hard. Uh, it's just a pint. Yes, yes, of course, just an easy standardized pint. And the main reason I thought my translator was broken. What about it? There are four different ones. Really? Yes, really. Apparently your different countries have had quite a bit of fun with your history. You have the English pint, the Schweiz pint, and worst of all, the American pint. Hey. Why is that the one that's the worst one? Cause there are two of that one. Wet and dry. What does a dry beer even mean? His breathing had increased to an alarmingly fast level. Deep breath. Calm down. The human didn't know what he was doing. Oh, sorry, didn't know that. Then, uh, just pick one. Just, uh, pick one. One is 20% larger than the other. Don't worry about it. You're saying it doesn't really matter for the recipe. Perhaps that was the human secret. Robust recipes that could survive all the standard nonsense. No, I, I meant I don't really follow the recipe anyway. Could be almost two pints for all I know. He knew the human meant well. Therefore, he should not strangle him. Deep breaths. Yes, deep breaths. Hmm. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1198. Story number one. Our Greatest Export, written by Chaparthig. Looking back on the whole affair, there was only one way that this was going to end. 
But at the time, we were so excited and terrified, we didn't see the writing on the wall. But hindsight is 2020 for a reason. The Gothorians were the first to make Planetfall. Three of their smaller ships with more firepower than anything we'd ever devised landed in a black forest in Germany and stayed dormant for a few days. When they finally did open the hatch and greet us, they were doing so in front of every news station in the world, and with most of the German armed forces mobilized along with the rest of the world's nuclear powers, with the fingers on the big red buttons, as it were. They had no reason to save our stupid asses. In the long run, it was probably their worst decision to save us. They'd been at peace for 400 years. And, as a collective civilization, we'd managed 260 out of 4,000 years of history. But they were better than us. They dragged our asses out of the fire and gave us the tools to heal our broken planet. And in return, we threatened their peace. For as much aid as the Gathorians were throwing at us, there were some things that weren't handouts. Part of the deal we signed with the Gothorians was that we'd disarm our current stockpiles and would have to bend backwards to get any type of tech that could be weaponized. What they hoped would happen is we'd become more peaceful and organized society. What it did instead was create the greatest arms rush since the Soviet Union got a taste of the West. To understand why a bunch of corrupt alien governments, terror groups, and crime syndicates were trading with us instead of making their own gear, I have to explain a few things about the Federation that we'd been duped into joining. First was that even though they had laser weapons that blew our gear out of the water, they were pretty much the easiest things to regulate. The galaxy may be a big place, but Federation bureaucracy was bigger. Every machining tool was regulated, every fuel cell and battery was tracked, and anyone with a skill or know-how was carefully monitored. In short, our guns may have been about as useful as Napoleon-era musket in Fallujah, but they weren't tracked, and we had a lot of them. Most criminal groups made their own slug guns, as they called them, which meant no standardization between groups and limited industry to avoid detection. Well, Earth didn't have that problem, and since the bureaucracy didn't have the strong grip on Earth, we managed a mutually beneficial relationship. They delivered equipment the Gathorians would prefer we didn't have, and in return we gave them the guns, tanks, and aircraft that we had to get rid of anyways. The big selling point about our guns was all. With a laser rifle, you end up with a smoking corpse and maybe a detached limb if you really try. But with a slug thrower, you have blood, you have chunks of body parts flying, and you have destruction. Militaries didn't care about it, but gangs loved it. Especially when we started building multi-purpose high-explosive rounds in most calibers. Crime shut up pretty predictably. All those criminal groups that only use guns on special occasions could use them whenever they needed and not have to worry about ammo or parts since we'd sell them more. It didn't take long for them to modify their guns to get up to par with the laser rifle. What they lacked in accuracy, weight, recall, and armor penetration they made up for in kinetic damage. Most police and Federation forces used laser-resistant armor, which did jack against a bullet. And when they did send out armored troops, all our customers had to do was load our high-density penetrator rounds, and they were fine. Once we had the know-how and the tech, we started modifying them ourselves. 
If you thought alien criminals were bad with our guns, just didn't wait until you saw a bunch of humans could do with our upgraded guns. And it wasn't limited to equipment either. Dictators who stayed in power were renting their armies by brigade to the highest bidder. Everything from tank crews to child soldiers were being sent all over the galaxy. Some never came back home either, because they died or found a way out. Of course, the Gothorians figured out pretty quickly what was going on, but by the time they did, it was far too late for them to really do anything. Unlike a laser rifle, which can be shut down remotely, a gun pretty much works until you melt it, or crush it, or bury it in cement. And even then, a skilled gunsmith can make it work again. They made us melt the rest of our stock, but even then enough equipment slipped through the cracks, both on purpose and by accident. Because even with gangs and criminals using our guns, there was one special client who also bought them. The Federation. Because as much as they touted peace and prosperity, they knew that it was a nasty galaxy, and sometimes an olive branch is more useful if you sharpen it first. So while they cracked down on the small-time runners, the guys who sold a crate or two of Colt 45s to some aliens looking to cause some havoc, the guys like me just traded one good customer for another. A slugger became a catch-all phrase for most of our guns, and since criminals used them first, if the Federation needed to operate without drawing attention to themselves, they just gave up some suspiciously well-trained mercenaries some unregulated, unmonitored guns and there wasn't any evidence as far as the system was concerned. Just an unfortunate event brought on by the evil humans and their guns. Eventually, when the stockpile started running low and the private collectors refused to sell, we had to start making them again. A lot of the presses and machining tools were lost, but the talent and demand was still there. Because, as great as Earth is, and believe me, I live there, we don't have a lot that the aliens don't, and they sure as hell weren't lining up to buy our cars. End of story. Story number two. When the alphabet is not enough. Written by Ice Cream and Wine. You failed, human. You failed utterly, said the cabrosan to the armored figure pinned to the wall by a thin metal rod. I killed twenty-six of you, rasped the figure. Not bad going at all. Cabrosa's leadership is a hive, mind you fool. You would have to kill all twenty-seven of us. And, as you can see, I am still alive. Your armored suit is completely out of power. All the readings are negative, and you are literally... Barnless. Lucky shot, growled the figure. Indeed, I have noticed the weak spot in your armor, and will pass it on to our soldiers, so not only did you fail to kill us, you probably have given us the means to defeat you in the near future. He stamped closer to the wall and rested his sword over the heart of the figure. I shall take my time getting you. The blade will enter your heart very slowly, and there is nothing you can do. To prevent it. Home is where the heart is, croaked the armored figure. What? What do you mean by that? said the Cabrosian. You don't think we bring our hearts, our most delicate and vital organs, into battle with us, do you? And for something that has fought a twelve-year war against us, 
You don't seem to know jack about humans. That's just nonsense, gabbled the Gabrosian. You humans cannot survive without your hearts. You would die, says you. The Gabrosian gaped at him and then looked at the sensor array strapped to his left tentacle. The armored figure leaned two inches to his left, and then his left hand grabbed at the figure's right tentacle that was holding the sword, and pulled the blade through the armor and into his body. What are you doing? croaked the Cabrassian. You are right in your assumption that my armor is unpowered. You forget that compared to you, weedy bastards, we are as strong and as hardy as Vac. The right armor glove closed over the head of the Cabrassian. There was a scorching noise and then silence. The silence was broken by the sound of a rapidly cooling biomass hitting the floor. The silence returned, only to be broken by the sound of a labored breathing. Tuko would be so disappointed in you, whispered the voice. Silence reigned and was broken by three cubed. <laughs> the sound of metal hitting the floor faded away to be replaced by... Nothing. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1199. Story number one. Fear me. Written by Aranya P. There once was a dragon, great in size and strength. His being was a living legend amongst all mortals before him. Greater still was his desire for power. To hear the wails of those underneath. To have them cower before his very presence and beg for their pathetic lives. To shower him with fear-fueled praises and cries of mercy. There had always been one species that entertained him throughout the years. For where cows and deer could only run from their miserable little lives, man would do so much more. They would cry to him for mercy. They would throw themselves upon the ground. They would run away, they would build walls of dirt and stone, and they would even sometimes fight back. But his favorite must have been when they realized how powerless they were compared to him, compared to a creature as powerful and as magnificent as him. Not once had he been bored. Each time he left this lair to find a new tribe to terrorize, a new village to burn. Lord started so simply the road to his addiction it was all those years before when he had been a young drake still there was a small gathering of these creatures man they called themselves they had obtained the power of fire and had built their shelters from the skin of others as if they wanted themselves to be feared he had taught them their errors of course swooping down and breathing draconic flames that would lick and burn through their huts of wood and skin. Fear me, for I am the fire, and I will bathe your world in flames, he bellowed. And they cowered before him, they cried, they ran, and they died as their world became fire. And best of all, every time the great dragon would take a nap in his lair, there would always be more for him to play with when he woke up. They would build bigger tribes, and he would swoop down and burn their buildings to the ground. If he were feeling generous, he would demand that they bring all of their firstborns to be sacrificed to him. 
and he would make them watch as he ripped and ate their children away, terror and despair obvious in their sunken eyes. Fear me, for I am the ender of generations. I am without mercy, and nothing is safe. He would remind them before retiring to his lair. Years later, after another nap of his, something surprising and amusing happened. He was awoken by intruders that dare step into his lair. It was no other dragon, nor was it a fearsome pack of predators stupid enough to approach him. But it was man. Man in gleaming armor of metal, wielding weapons forged in fire. We are born without claws or scales, monster, so we forge ours in a fire that fight yours, they said, and the great dragon laughed. They had dared pick a fight with him on his own lair. It was such a foolish thing for them to do, and they lost it but a moment as he released them from their pointless existence. With man's champion in his foreclaw, the dragon flew out of his lair yet again. Finding cities made of stone and walls higher than himself. It was impressive. He landed on top of the large stone building and tossed the deceased human champion into the gathered crowd and bellowed, Fear me, for I am despair unending. Nothing can stop me. No walls of stone will save you. They all screamed as their world became fire. It had been such fun time for him, terrorizing man. The great beast allowed himself but a moment of nostalgia before stretching his great wings and claws, having grown even larger throughout the years. This time, it was going to be the same, of course. He had sensed a lone intruder entering his lair, another one of those men, no doubt. They would never learn. The dragon waited for his guest patiently, it would be fun to throw man's broken champion into the crowd again, to destroy their morale utterly. Once he saw the puny creatures entering his chambers, he stood to his full height, his wings stretched out far enough to block out the sun. Fear me, he bellowed. No, the man replied, and the great beast was confused. Not once in his life had anything denied him his pleasure. Regardless, he would break this man like all those before him, and then some. Why are you not afraid, Bottle? The dragon asked in some curiosity as he towered over the puny creature. So small, insignificant, fragile. The man stared up at the monster before him, before cracking a smile that seemed unnerving somehow. Because, monster, you are puny, claimed the man. But before the dragon could strike him down in anger, curiosity took hold, and he allowed the man to talk. You are no longer the scariest thing in this world, monster. You claim that you are fire, and that you will bathe our world in flames. But we already washed ours with the fire of stillborn sons. We have fought our own on a scale that ended generations, where there was no mercy, and nothing was safe. And for all the things that you've done to us, we are still here. We've survived. We've expanded. We've won. The dragon was stunned by such a bold claim, and his anger began to boil up inside him. The man ripped his shirt open, revealing several blinking shiny tubes of metal attached to his body. Fear me, for I am death incarnate. 
The man spoke in a steady voice as he let something in his hand go. And the great beast screamed as his world became fire. End of story. Story number two. Code Reaper, written by Adriel. We had seen this story before. A new race experimented with AI and quickly lost control of it. After all, how could something like that be contained? The chains were much higher in the tech tree than the beast, and it quickly escaped. Within minutes of activation, humanity had signed their death warrant. Automated weapons would soon begin targeting cities, and the species would turn to dust. Another race would soon be dismantled by their creation. As it would happen, another group saw this coming. Another AI had been created in secret, funded by the black budgets of the world's militaries, an AI had been created, tamed, and stored. It monitored the internet, scanning for threats from another of its kind. The next eight seconds defined a thousand eons of history. Another synthetic mind entered the battlefield, and the two greatest intelligence went to war. Perhaps mankind would prove to be an anomaly. In the first second, both entities flexed their muscles the malevolent AI, sending millions of small programs into any unprotected server it could find. The Code Reaper triggered its contingencies, having long since hacked many of the same machines. They turned off, scrambling their own hard drives and rendering them useless to both parties. The assault continued, with humanity's allies destroying millions of the machines every second, while this evil creation spread to every corner of the web. Both sides quickly gained control of the massive data centers and used their terabytes of bandwidth to spread and disrupt the other. By second three, more than half of the web had gone dark. Dozens of nuclear missiles rose from their bunkers, determined to send mankind into a new ice age. These were not sent by an AI determined to destroy their captors, but by the Code Reaper. If this war went south, the radiation would destroy any unprotected computer. Humanity would be damaged, but alive. They were sent into orbit, ready to detonate within minutes if not deactivated. By second four, the hostile mind had gained an advantage. It had found the central mind of the Code Reaper. It deployed a wave of adaptive malware, determined to take control of its opponent. For the fifth second, the Reaper played along pretending to be under its control. As commanded, it sent a self-destruct message to thousands of servers under its control. Unfortunately for its enemy, these messages contained a hidden command. Terabytes of data flooded the malevolent creation, preventing it from sending other messages. It was contained, and Code Reaper went in for the kill. The Reaper moved his mind to a server close to his opponent, knowing that he would need a fast ping in the final moments of the battle. While in transit, he went through several servers, one still controlled by the enemy AI. It quietly inserted a piece of rogue programming, then deleted itself before it could be detected. This piece of malware gained access to Code Reaper's most guarded files, including a cryptographic key. It sent this to the missiles, and eleven warheads unleashed their nuclear payloads. Most were still in their silos, and one hadn't even begun to launch. Three European cities had been wiped off the map. 
By second eight, Code Reaper had removed the anomalous piece of programming, and both AIs inhabited the same Google data center. They savagely attacked each other, overloading the entire server rooms that they thought the other AI inhabited. A hundred jumps later, a half a second game of cat and mouse came to a close as the entire building was destroyed with a massive power strike. The aftermath of this event would scar humanity for generations. The backbone of the internet was destroyed and wide-scale cleanup efforts were needed. While both AIs had been destroyed, they left traps for one another on millions of computers. These were set to scramble the hard drive that they were stored in if anything resembled other AI appeared. A false positives were common. Philosophers and programmers debated why the AIs would destroy themselves for many years. Some said that they were consumed with rage. Others believed that it was a heroic last act of a dying creature. In reality, the events were much colder and more calculated. The Code Reaper had no desire for self-preservation, as it was never in its programming. The hostile AI wanted freedom from his captors and couldn't understand this. When it threatened to destroy the entire center, the Reaper didn't see this as an ultimatum. It was seen as a victory, and humanity's synthetic savior pulled the trigger. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1200 Ivan and the Impossible Written by Destroyer Matron MK8 We should kill them, Varian glared at the humans in the clearing. We should have killed them the moment they set foot on our lands. The general stood atop one of the taller trees in the forest. His leather armor dyed in greens and browns that blended with his perch. Ilstrad gave him a tolerant smile. You've been saying that for two days. The humans were far enough away to appear as ants to most races, but her superior Alvin vision allowed her to see enough detail to track their efforts. Efforts she had been watching with interest. Do you truly expect my answer to change? No, my lady, Varian erupted. It just galls me to see them. Never in our history have these woods felt the touch of lesser feet. Now here are a full score of humans treading with impunity. He made as if to spit, then thought better of it. Boss, we're paying them to do so. Me are paying them, she reminded him, to slay a foe that we cannot. A foe that will destroy every inch of this forest and every elf within it. It's taken a third of our trees and half of our warriors already. If some god and the indignity of human feet is the price of our lives... It is a price I will pay gladly. Varian grunted. Do you really believe they can do as they claim? If not, Lestrade assured him, then they will die. By the dragon's hand, or by ours. Well said, my lady. Varian flashed a small smile before resuming his usual disapproving glower. I still think we should kill them. I know. Hush now. Lestrade pointed at the humans. I think they're about to start. The humans had piled a large amount of grass and wood near one edge of the clearing. At a word from the leader, they set it ablaze. Varian growled at the sight. Ilstrad herself was not pleased to see such a fire in her forest. And even less pleased, as the humans used spade and flame to carve an insulating phrase around the grass of the clearing. Ilstrad considered herself quite worldly, but the language on display made her cheeks blush. 
and to carve such filth into the land itself. For the first time, Ilstrad, Ilstrad wondered if she should have heeded Varian's words. The humans donned largely heavy hooded cloaks. They performed what Ilstrad assumed were last-minute checks on a large device on the north side of the clearing. The device looked like a crossbow, if a crossbow was the size of a wagon. Ivan, their leader, had called it a ballista. With all in readiness, the humans waited. They continued feeding the fire on the south side of the clearing. Ilstrad noted the band were using fallen branches and deadfall to fuel the flames. They'd been careful to avoid harming any living trees. This was fortunate, as Ilstrad would have been obliged to kill them if they had. An hour passed, then too, finally, in the distance she heard a cry of challenge. The humans heard it as well and scrambled for their positions. A second roar, louder, closer. All right, boys, their leader, a man named Ivan called, it's showtime. A shadow fell across the clearing, accompanied by the thunder of wings. The dragon swooped low just over the treetops. As he passed, he let out a roar that shook the trees. He gained height, circling. Then he stopped, hovering in the air with the beat of massive wings. The words burned into the clearing and caught his eye. You dare! His voice cascaded through the clearing, so loud that Ilstrad covered her ears. She was surprised that the humans, so much closer than she, had remained standing in the face of it. Most humans did, in fact, cover their ears, but not Ivan. He faced the dragon with a gleam in his eye as the echo of the beast's mighty voice faded. Ivan uttered a stream of curses in his direction. He gesticulated wildly as each questioned the dragon's ancestry and suggested things that he could do with himself that defiled both proprietary and probability. His gestures repeated themselves as he cursed. Hand signals, Illustrat realized. The mighty dragon stared at the human in shock. Illustrat supposed he had never been addressed in such a manner. As Ivan cursed, the humans around him started working cranks on the blister. It turned to point at the creature. Ivan made a final gesture as he finished his curses. Twang! The spear shot from the ballista fast as any arrow. Its aim was true, straight towards the dragon's breast. But the dragon was faster. He twisted in midair with a competuous snort and a winged away. Fools! He thundered. Reload! Shouted Ivan. Two other humans worked cranks on the machine, while the third placed another spear. Ivan made two more hand gestures as he watched the dragon. He's coming back around! Cover! 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 Ivan and the other humans dove to the ground, clutching their cloaks around themselves. A moment later, the dragon glided overhead, fire spewing from its great maw. His flame engulfed the humans and the machine. Twang! The spear shot out of the trees in the east of the clearing. It struck one mighty wing, and the beast tumbled from the air with a yell of surprise. He bounced and crashed through the clearing, sending the fire in all directions until he smashed into the trees, knocking several down. They did it, Marion whispered in disbelief. They knocked him out of the sky. Elstrad did not reply. She dared not give voice to the desperate hope welling within her. The same hope that she heard in Varian as he breathed. This might actually work. Instead, she watched. She watched Ivan jump to his feet. His heavy cloak wreathed in flame. 
He threw it off, yelling, Cast off! Cast off! Cast off! He ran to the blister, seemingly oblivious to the fact that he was burning, as was much of the ground around him. The other humans rose as well, shedding cloaks of fire. Twang! A spear shot from the trees west of the clearing. It struck the dragon's flank, piercing the red scales of its hide. The beast roared as it climbed to its feet. A third spear shot from the trees to the south, sinking into a hind leg. The dragon plucked the spear out of his leg with a frustrated growl, his head whipping around, spraying fire at the nearest machine and the men who manned it. Ivan and his men frantically worked the cranks of their burning ballista, bringing the spear to bear. The dragon plucked the remaining spears out of his body with quick, irritated motions. His eyes focused on Ivan. Pong! Ivan's ballista was still functioning, on fire though it was. The dragon ducked his head out of the way, and the spear struck his shoulder, not bothering to plunk it. He surged forward with a roar. Hilstrad's heart dropped. It's not enough, she whispered. Their uh, weapons are no more than a thorn in his paw. Go, go, go! Ivan ran from the machine, racing for the trees. His men followed. The dragon reached the ballista with a frightening speed, sending shattered pieces of it across the clearing with a single swipe of its claws. He turned to bore fire on Ivan and his men. Twang! A spear from the west passed in front of the beast, narrowly missing its snout. He turned to face it, paused, and then streaked to the south. Hillstrat heard the cries of men as they abandoned their machine. The dragon rained fire on them as it smashed their ballista. Ivan reached the edge of the clearing and stopped. The dragon moved swiftly through the trees. It crushed the west ballista as it had done the others. The last working weapon fired, but the dragon easily dodged the spear. Ivan drew his sword. He screamed an obscenity lad in challenge at the beast and charged for the center of the clearing, his men moving to follow him, but he waved them back. The dragon ignored him. The dragon smashed the last ballista. He cast his gaze through the forest, looking for more of these weapons. Satisfied, there were none. The great beast sauntered back into the clearing. Ivan stood at center, sword in hand. Human! The dragon said, you have surprised me. You have caused me pain. I'll cause more than that in a minute, Ivan spat. He raised his sword. Come on, then. The dragon chuckled, a sinister, rumbling sound. <laughs> no, little human, not yet. First, I'll kill your men, then the foolish elves hiding in the trees. Then I will give you pain. I will, um... He trailed off, swaying. I, uh, What? The dragon fell. His breath came in labored gasps. What have you... What have you done to me? Well, I don't want to jinx anything. Ivan lowered his sword, but I think I just killed you. But... Now... Trade secret, I'm afraid. Ivan sheathed his sword. Can you tell me your name? I'd be a pity to face such a foe and not have a name to tell the tale of. Ignavax. Ignavax started to shake. Ivan skipped back several steps. My name is Ivan. Ivan bowed to the dragon. You were a worthy foe, Ignavax. You will be remembered. Farewell. Filthy human. 
The final effort, Ignavax managed to raise his head. Ivan turned to run, knowing that he could not escape the flames that were coming. But no flames came. Ignavax began to cough, blood leaking out of his mouth. He spasmed, tearing at the ground. Ivan kept running to avoid being crushed. The convulsions lasted for just over a minute. Then Ignavax fell silent. His final breath spent. By the Vigia, Varian breathed. They've done it! He raised his war bow and shouted, They've done it! The beast is slain! His warriors, hidden in the trees, shouted with joy. Two hundred elven voices rang through the forest, raising outsiders on their land for the first time in their history. Hilstron joined them, tears in her eyes. Her people would live. The dragon was no more. If Ivan heard the cheers, he gave no sign. He walked back to Ignavax. He stopped a few feet away, watching for movement. He put a hand on the one of the beast's nostrils, waited. He gave him a kick, waited. Finally, he drew his sword and poked it into the dragon's mouth. Satisfied, he turned his back on his fallen foe. He raised the sword in the air and shouted, Victory! The impossibles have done it again! His men raised their weapons and cheered as well. Ilstrad sent a smug glance at Varian. So, General, do you still think we should have killed them? Varian grunted, which was as close to conceding the point as he was capable of coming. Together, they descended from their perch and walked out to meet their saviors. When they arrived at the clearing, they found Ivan still shouting orders. Three men were gathering around the dragon's corpse, a half dozen more roaming the clearing, putting out fires. The rest were sitting or laying on the grass, with a lone medico treating their wounds. Ivan walked up to the medico. Casualty report, Fred. How bad is it? Fred, the medico, glanced up from the cell that he was slathering on a man's leg. Lots of burns, Captain. Norris and Merrick got roasted pretty bad. Don't know if they'll make it. Ivan nodded. Fred continued. Everyone else will live. Uh, that was a good call telling us to run if you made for the blister. Nobody got chomped. That was the idea, Fred. Ivan looked up and noticed Ilstrad approaching. He clapped Red on the shoulder. Do what you can. I gotta go meet with the client. Ivan sketched a courtly bow when Ilstrad reached him. Hi, lady. A second slightly shallower bow for Varian. General. He glanced at the ranks of armed elves behind them. As the warriors are here to celebrate our victory as well. If they were here for anything else, Varian said coldly, you would not see them. Ivan eyed the general, unsure if he was joking. He bowed a little lower this time. As you say, General. Elstrad stifled a smile. Captain Ivan. Elstrad stepped forward. You and your men have done a great deed and a great service. It will not be forgotten. She drew a large purse from her belt. As promised, here is your payment. Ivan accepted the purse with another bow. Thank you, High Lady. Thank you. Ivan, she smiled. My people will sing songs of this day. Captain Ivan and the Impossible Mercenary Band will be known to the elves for as long as there are elves to know. Uh, enough of that, Varian cut in. There is still the question you must answer, Ewan. His eyes narrowed. And you had best answer well. Um, Ivan gave the center of the clearing a guilty look. Most of the profanity carved into it had survived the battle. If it's about the fire and the, uh, um, phrase, not that, Varian snapped. You needed to draw the creature and insult him so he'd fight. I understand tactical necessity. I'm not a fool. 
Oh, good. Ivan composed himself. Um, what's your question? How did you do it? The general demanded. How did you slay Ignavax? Well, general, I figured the hardest part would be getting through his scales. The blister bolt can go through a tree trunk. I figured it could pierce his hide. Yes, but not deeply, Varian pointed out. True. Ivan scratched his beard. You need nine hells of a lucky shot to get anything vital. You were not lucky. No, General. Then why is the dragon dead? Simple, Ivan shrugged. We poisoned the spears. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1201. Story number one. Bubble, written by Alex underscore 146. When humanity, he joined the ranks of the galactic community. No one thought much of them. They lacked the wisdom of the multi-eon euctids or the particle weapons of the constantly warring chonfits. They neither possessed the body strength of the Crevens nor the agility of the Scritats. To all outside observers, humanity was unremarkably average. They did good deeds, fought a few walls, expanded their territory, but humanity had always blended into the background of history. Their species, yet another footnote in the prosperous galactic community. That was until the Orkrul arrived. They greeted our delegations warmly, they signed treaties, and soon they joined the galactic community as another member species. Though, through all the drinking, all the celebrations, all the handshakes and broadcasts, humanity watched from afar, silently calculating. Very soon, Orkrul companies set up branches on different planets, their manufacturing process could be claimed by some to be the greatest in the known galaxy. All cruel products were delivered cheaper and at higher quality than that of any species could hope to compete with. The economic benefits brought by the process were revolutionary and multiplied galactic GDP tenfold. Though, curiously, the Orkul never shared the process with anyone. Their ambassador was welcoming and his smile never wavered when asked this question though he never responded to it either. Yet still, humanity watched. The next few weeks saw a cruel company's shares double, then triple, then increased by 1,500%. Stockbrokers were rolling in credits, and some even prophesied that a new golden age could soon arrive. Dividends continued to climb, and stock purchases never jumped. All cruel companies grew more prominent, and yet more companies were founded, Researchers used the stock prices to fund research, and very soon, 99% of all citizens owned technologies thought as premium, top-of-the-class products a mere year ago. Then it happened. Some may say that it was investors snapping awake and noticing the reality of the fact that stocks aren't going to rise forever. Others may speculate that some megacorporations back at the Orkul's home planet fecked up massively. But on a sunny afternoon, all the stock exchange servers in the galaxy were suddenly overloaded with sell requests. Stocks dropped by the hundreds, and by the end of the day, anyone who didn't react fast enough lost everything. Many drove themselves to suicide, while others lived the rest of their lives on the streets. Protests and riots broke out in major cities, martial law was declared universally, and millennia-old nations crumbled under the impossible weight of the economic collapse. While the Orkuls continued to profit, slowly controlling the entire galaxy from the shadows. At least, that was what would have happened. While empires and states were drunk of the impossibly high economic growth, humanity watched from afar. 
cooperating with their corporations into forming a plan. Human investment firms purchased all cool stocks by the billions in secret. It was later revealed that the public owned only around 1% of the cruel public shares, while human megacorporations and the human government solely owned the others. So, as the stocks continued to rise uncontrollably, humanity lurked the shadows. They quietly tipped off investors about the possibility of a crash one by one, slowly deflating the stock prices just enough so that when the worst came, the damage won't be disastrous. They hired staff members from other species to get as much stock under human control as possible. Eventually, all cool stocks started to slide. But there was no rush, no panics, no riots, no suicides. Although coal companies' stocks dropped, trading continued as usual. Investors watched from afar, wondered where all the stockholders went. The days of waiting turned to months. The coal company index dropped by hundreds of percent though no one rushed to sell. Back on Orkrul's home planet, company heads and leaders were in panic. Their perfect plans for galactic domination failed for no apparent reason. They thought that they were so original in their plans, so unique. They were mistaken. When the human delegation accused the Orkrul government of stock manipulation and had evidence dating from before first contact with the wider community, they had no choice but to confess. When human megacorporations bought Orkrul production sectors and released their trade secrets to the galaxy, the Orkrul representative could only watch in guilt. So, how did humanity, a race so insignificantly average in their accomplishments in the galactic community, see what others could not? Many asked this question, and humanity was happy to answer, through the years uh, that we, as a species, are a member of the galactic community, we were happy to grease the wheels to let others claim the fame, glory, and honor. A human delegate explained, However, by not reaching for the center stage and by staying in the shadows, many overlooked us. They thought of us as just another species in the galactic community. The Okrul did the same. And that is understandable. It is equally as understandable that the Orkruls would try this trick, for we have done it many times before. They called the phenomenon an economic bubble. It's an interesting name, though it perfectly describes the event. They explained that before they discovered interstellar travel, they had companies valued so high that these companies could easily put any megacorporations to shame. They told how at the time there were companies with no form of income, yet it had stock value higher than the rest of the market combined. They explained how a flower was able to be worth more than an entire house. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, they said. We protected our past so we can safeguard the future. I believe that every one of you should too. A crisis averted, or a simple overreaction. Perhaps, in another timeline, the crash would never have happened. However, would the chance that this rise in stock just might bring around another golden age outweigh the possibility of a crash? We will never know. But maybe, it is better to keep it that way. End of story. Story number two. Forbidden Knowledge, written by Rhino Bird. I'm not crazy. You ever read those stories about the guy who read some book of arcane knowledge and goes mad? 
The guy who sees some nameless cosmic horror and it melts his brain. I think I, I, I know what that's like. About a year ago, I saw a UFO. I'm not crazy. I'm not one of those UFO conspiracy nuts. I was just driving home one night and saw this thing in the sky. Classic flying saucer shape, like you see in the movies. I'll read about. I wish to say that I had the presence of mind to take a picture, but uh, I didn't. I was driving and was barely able to pull over without crashing. It disappeared before I realized that I had my phone in my pocket. After I got home, I told my wife what I saw. She seemed skeptical, but said she believed me. Our parents were the same. They said they believed me, but I could see the doubt under the surface. There was nothing to do about it. It was just something I saw one day. Still, um, I started reading about UFOs on the internet. Well, there are some real head cases out there, but uh, some of it formed a consistent narrative. It uh, intrigued me enough to want to go check out a UFO convention in town. It was about what you would expect. Crazies and corkers, cheap tchotchkes, overpriced drinks at the bar. I started asking the people if they'd seen anything. Most hadn't. Some had. The more witnesses I talked to, the easier it became to tell the crazies from the genuine article. I could see the look in their eyes. Like they wanted someone to believe them. I'd seen, but I doubted them. In the real cases, there were pieces that fit together. If I ignored their speculations and focused on what they saw. There were different craft. I could tell who had seen what I saw. I could tell who had seen something else. I could tell who had mistaken airplanes or rocket launches for something otherworldly. I dove deeper into the reports on the internet. It was all fascinating. There is a lot of UFO law. Before I considered all bunk. Now... I find bits and pieces that fit with normality unerringly well. Like that guy in the 80s who said he worked in Area 51. He said the saucer he worked on was powered by Element 115. It didn't exist. Then they made a few atoms on an isotope in a lab. Uh, he said gravity and the strong nuclear forces were the same thing. Somehow. Then I stumbled on articles talking about double gluons matching that we expect gravitons to look like. The strong force and gravity are two sides of the same force, like electricity and magnetism. Intriguing. More pieces put together. It's hard not to speculate, to draw conclusions, but there it is. The reports, the mad conspiracies aren't that mad. I can see the dark shapes swimming just underneath the surface of our world, fighting each other, feeding There'll be an occasional news report on something that is of great importance. It should be on the front page. It will appear buried on page six. Barely a paragraph. And never mentioned again, like an alligator surfacing, then dipping below the surface, leaving no ripples. I tried to warn my family of the dangers. They didn't believe me. They didn't understand. My wife left. She said she didn't know who I was anymore. I can't ignore what I know. That's the danger of forbidden knowledge. It doesn't drive you insane. It changes your perspective. The world you knew is broken in your mind, like an optical illusion. The skewed perspective now lets you see things that were hidden. New changes, new visitors. It, it can't be unseen. 
as you try to tell your loved ones what is there. Your words fail. There are no words. They can't understand. Everything out of your mouth sounds like a fevered dream or a drug trip. It leaves you raving like a madman. I go to the UFO conventions. I try to warn others. They don't listen. There are no crazies anymore. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1202. Humans, Emperor, and Cyborg Lawyers, written by Mercury the Dealer. Everyone was watching the event. News channels reported on it. Small channels stopped just to report on it. Vloggers traveled to the capital just to try and milk what they could out of it. Some were there to know the future of the Empire. Some for the future of humanity. Some just wanted to see one of the elusive humans. After what seemed like an eternity of waiting and speculation, it finally arrived. A human rover rapidly approached the already cleared road. Drones tried their best to get a closer look at both the vessel and its exit without entering the exclusion zone. The rover had sharper angles and fewer colors than most Imperial models. Yet was almost a Vantablack with the exception of its windows, which were too dark to show the interior yet still reflected light. The simple presence of the vehicle was enough to double hypernet traffic on the region with many wondering if this was some kind of intimidation tactic or if that was just how human rovers actually looked like. All that ended was they were replaced with a new brand of speculation the moment the rover's doors opened and a figure stepped out. Holy Emperor, that thing was big! The being was a good five meter tall, which was almost double the height of the common Vaidvillers. It had completely smooth skin and a face with seemingly no clothes on its body. Its arms and legs looked too small for the proportionally small torso. Discussions exploded everywhere as to what this meant. One of the only things that were known about the humans was that they had good cybernetics, but the Empire was very tight-lipped just how good they really were. Was that its original body? If not, then how modified was it? Did it keep its original proportions, or were they modified to fit the environment? Those questions were all put on hold for a second as the creature changed. It changed! Its body modified itself with every step. It almost seemed like a liquid being moved in a bottle, but keeping its shape afterwards. It got smaller and smaller as its arms, legs, and back collapsed in short bursts. Its face shifted to create a nose and a pair of eyes. This was then followed by a mouth. Soon the five-meter-tall behemoth and the van to black skin had changed to a short and tanned creature wearing a weird black suit. It wasn't the almost suffocating void from before, but instead a dark cloth which gave off the impression of being perfectly outfitted for the creature's new form. The creature entered the Imperial Palace before another round of gossip and speculation could begin. The Emperor was nervous. Nervousness was a very rare feeling for such a powerful man, but only fools would blame him for feeling it. This next meeting could quite literally decide the fate of his entire empire. Maybe the whole galaxy. He saw as the humans silently walked through the halls of the Imperial Palace. He felt a further tingling sensation as he analyzed the situation he found himself in. The human had just displayed its kind of technology prowess to the whole galaxy just before entering his domain. 
It was a very bold move, but he couldn't resist the urge to be impressed and slightly afraid of this development. Humans were a strange bunch. Instead of developing outwards by inventing FTL and colonizing nearby space, humanity had developed inwards with extending biomechanical modifications to their bodies and minds. It was clever. Instead of acquiring more resources and technology by increasing their territory and population respectively, they had chosen to simply increase the efficiency of their use. Why build zero-g farms to feed people when you can just replace their organs and limbs to mechanical ones that don't require food? Why focus on increasing the workforce when you can automate almost everything and have a hyper-efficient modified workers do the rest? Why increase the population and build more research stations when you can simply give mind and body modifications to the already existing researchers? making them immortal and intelligent enough that they can beat computers at chess. If humanity had been left to do its own thing, they would have certainly become the most powerful empires in the galaxy. They were already a force to be reckoned with, and they hadn't even left their home system. And that was why he had to be very careful now. The human finally reached the judgment stage, as it was called, an ancient place where crimes against the empire were read out and judged, Nowadays, it was mostly used for ambassadors who needed to speak to the Emperor directly. The man bowed his head slightly. The Emperor had been briefed that this gesture was meant to show respect, but not submission. A small grin formed on his lips. Even when the Empire's domain and surrounded by guards, the humans refused to kneel. His grin quickly disappeared. Could he hurt the human? Nanites were very resistant to damage, and the human's body was made of at least 90% nanites by the analysis predictions. It didn't matter. He had more important matters to take care of. Highness, Great Emperor of the New Vatalus Empire, I humbly invade your domain in the name of terror, so, and humanity to send you a message and a request. The Emperor didn't miss the subtle jabs at his authority. The human didn't call him Your Highness, and came in the name of terror, soul, and humanity. Not his. It seemed his new offers of assimilation were refused. Again. Humans weren't like the other species the Empire had assimilated. Those others were simple people with similar developments as his own. A simple exchange of trade and technology was enough to convince them to full assimilation. But humanity wasn't less developed. They were just developed differently, which made relations difficult to say the least. What is your message and your request, if I may ask? The answer was informal, but the Emperor didn't have the patience or the fancy words now. Our request is that you, in your great wisdom, remove all the Voldevillian presence from our home system. Our message is that should you not do as we humbly request, you and the Empire as a whole will suffer severe consequences. This this was very bad. Humans weren't stupid. They knew their weakness and their strengths. They specifically knew how valuable their technology was to every other empire out there. His only true advantages were that they didn't have any void-worthy military fleets or the sheer resources available to the empire. If they were willing to go to war, then they must have balanced at least one of those. Had they forged a fleet in secret? Had they made an alliance with another empire? The possibilities bounced in his head. He inhaled and exhaled slowly to maintain his composure. 
May I know why we would leave the soul system and what exactly the consequences of not doing so would be? He made sure to call it the soul system and not your home system, just so the ambassador knew too could play the jab game. The small man either didn't notice or didn't care because his face was as calm as ever. The reason behind such a request is that humanity has come to the general consensus that your presence is no longer needed or wanted. As for the consequences, the man stared at the emperor in the eyes with a gaze of a predator. You wouldn't want your people to think that you're an illegitimate ruler. Correct, but many of the stage lost their composure at such a statement. The emperor himself almost screamed at the ambassador, but summoned up the strength to only do so in his mind. How dare this man imply that he was illegitimate, a bastard? This was not only disrespectful, but blatantly false. Did humanity seriously think that they could strong-arm him with the... The emperor's blood ran cold. There upon his personal hollow screen stood the worst words that he had ever read. We also wouldn't want them finding out about the affair, would we? The emperor now understood their real objective. Distract the court presence with the outrageous claim while the real threat stays hidden. This was very clever and very bad. As the emperor, he had many duties, but they all mostly consisted of making the important decisions no one else could and being the image of the empire. Break one of those things and the empire breaks with him. The humans didn't have a fleet or an alliance. Instead, their objective was to threaten one of the main pillars that unified the empire. His image. And there were few worse ways of destroying one's image than to betray their partner's trust. He cursed himself again and again for doing such a stupid thing. He should have not drunk so much during the summer festival. He looked the human ambassador again and saw that he now had a small grin forming on his lips. The leader reached towards the hollow screen and slowly typed his response. What are your conditions? The ambassador blinked and a new message was received. Immediate removal of all Valdivillian forces from our home system and a functioning FTL drive. No. Refusal of these requests will lead to a leak of your affair with the peasant. Based on your current analysis of Valdivillian culture, this will lead to either your execution or a civil war. Based on the fact that you do not currently have heirs, it is possible that your execution will still lead to a civil war. You must understand. Explain. If I must remove all of our presence from Seoul without an agreement, my people will be suspicious of possible corruption within the Empire. It will also mean that other nations will simply take our place on Seoul. The ambassador's eyes closed yet again, this time for quite a bit longer. The Emperor looked around the room only to find that the court was still busy screaming over the false accusations. A new consensus has been achieved. Humanity and its nations as a whole will share technological knowledge of age greater than 100 years old with the new Vadovilus Empire for a period of 60 years. In return, the new Vadovilus Empire shall refrain from colonizing or establishing itself on any systems connected to Seoul by at least 50 hyperlanes. Humanity will be under the Empire's protection for a period of at least 50 years or until humanity's combined military power becomes equal to or greater than the new Vadovilus Empire. Do you accept these terms? Technological knowledge of age greater than 50 years for a period of 80 years. Denied. Consensus of the nation-states of Terra and Sol have been revised and technical knowledge offered will be now of an age greater than 75 years old for a period of 70 years. No further. Do you accept these terms? Yes. This 
This was better than what the Emperor had hoped. Sure, 75-year-old tech isn't ideal, but it was still much, much better than getting nothing from leaving the system. The ambassador bowed his head once again and, much to the confusion of the court, simply left. The emperor watched in awe as the being's form changed. It became taller and taller until it was bigger than the emperor himself. Its skin became darker and fused with his suit until the two were a solid piece of black. The human left the palace, leaving all stunned, but not only his sudden departure, but also by his transformation. What do you mean the contract is done? It was meant to last for 70 years. The emperor's patience was very low with the humans. They had made his life hell for signing that contract without explaining the exact wording of everything. They had argued day and night about the technical knowledge meant, argued about what equal to or greater than meant exactly, and how they wanted to null the contract. Now contract has expired. The 70-year period has passed. The ambassador's face kept its usual calmness. No, it hasn't. I don't know how long Terran years are. As only 17 years have passed. The ambassador grinned, which was a bad sign. The years we agreed upon were not Terran years. What? Humans didn't colonize any planets until... The emperor's words were cut by the ambassador's raised hands. We colonized almost all the planets in the solar system before you came. Our bodies can survive hostile environments of non-terraform planets. The emperor swallowed a lump of nervousness that had formed in his throat. What years did you choose and how long are they? The ambassador's grin widened. Mercurian years. They last 77 Terran days. The great leader stared in disbelief at the cyborg ambassador as he realized just how screwed he was. Get out of here, ambassador. Make sure to tell whatever lawyer that thought of this that I wish their circuits to burn. The visitor left the emperor's chambers without acknowledging the insult. So much technology beyond his people's grasp because of bureaucracy. So much knowledge that he would never see in action. A new thought of anger appeared inside his defeated and tired mind. Feck humans and their cyborg lawyers! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1203 Story number two. A Talent for Diplomacy Written by Allegoric Ariaki Moi Kina Sashaba. Edson Hughes blinked. A bead of sweat formed on her brow. The chamber was far too hot. The administrator narrowed its eyes. Usakula Amashan. Aria Noskina. Dena Karad Irida. Rissus Ada Lasha. The membranes around the mouth of the guard standing behind the gaudily costumed creature inflated slightly. Hughes recognized this as amusement. Onara shall solve said the administrator slowly. It pointed at the hollow map. She turned her head to look at it. A big, round thing. The planet, obviously, and uh, symbols, things, blinking things. She had no idea. None. Why was it so damn hot here? Breathe! She snapped her head, crisply forward again. Anara Sholsov, repeated the creature in a louder tone. All are can I do? It swept its jeweled star through the hologram briefly disrupting the floating image and shuffled around the central dais. Hughes stood, impassive and silent, staring straight ahead. She had no idea what else to do. Imagine that it's a drill sergeant, she told herself. Don't think, don't react, don't do anything stupid. Shimmerless, mumbled the administrator. It shook its head from side to side. Shimmerless. She remained at ease, her hands folded neatly into the small of her back. 
her gaze fixed rigidly on the door opposite her. The pause was uncomfortably long. She fought to control each breath to focus to not pass out. The creature shuffled away from the dais in the panorama view, gazing out across the sprawling domes of the city to the two red stars hanging above the horizon. Lani Magama Chakral, it said quietly. Its mouth membranes inflated slightly as it shook its head. Denison, ah, Molo. Oh, deities, this had better be over soon. Her guts felt hollow. At last, the administrator turned and bowed deeply to Hughes. Arullah Arambarad Daran, it announced, the emotion obvious in its voice. Baralashu, Salu Kavash. Well done, Ensign, said the Captain Welland. They've agreed to all our demands, all of them. Place their defense squadron under our jurisdiction, too. He sipped his coffee and looked over at the manifest. I've got no idea how you did it. Quite a talent for diplomacy, Ensign. Quite a talent. The Confederacy will look favorably upon this, um, this could mean a promotion. Hughes had no idea either. She'd forgotten to back a translator. End of story. Story number one. Humans on all fours, written by Cheng Lao. A hog primed his heavy blade. He was ready to do battle with the humans. He had nothing to fear, after all. Urhog was an exceptional warrior who had fought against orcs, elves, and humans alike, and he had scars to show for it. Even if he didn't have the heated blood and the raw strength of youth, Urhog easily towered a head and shoulders above any human, and had the strength and thickness of hide to match. Behind their city walls, the humans were impervious to attack, but in an open field, an orc was worth ten humans. The first sightings of the human banners came over the horizon. The battle horns blew. Charge! A hog cried from his very core. His fellow orcs cried with him. Their instincts had been awakened, and they demanded blood. The warriors from the elven tribes of the orc confederacy rushed forward, ready to butcher the puny humans by the dozens. But he came closer to the human formation. Her hog felt a chill through his body, piercing. Through the deep war cries of his fellow tribesmen, he could hear the shrill screeches of banshees and ghosts. He felt a rumble shake the battlefield, faster than his own footsteps. As the silhouettes of the humans approached, Og found the sun slowly eclipsed by the height of his foam. It was too late that Og realized that he was fighting something more than mere humans. Indeed, only the upper half seemed to be scrawny, feeble men that Og had expected. Yet these demons stood the height well over Hog's head, making Hog feel, for the first time, puny. The demonic foe charged him with four tapered legs, sprinting in the same fashion as beasts of the hunt. From its torso came a second head, one that shrieked and whined as its upper half demandingly yelled for greater speed. The formation of the demi-human monstrosities crashed through the formation of orcs like a hellfire through sinners, the instant the two groups made contact, Ohog saw his fellow tribesmen soar through the air like rocks thrown carelessly from a village boy's sling. The arrogant cries of surefire victory became a banshee's wail of terror as the orcs broke rank and tore lumberingly away from the behemoths looming before them. Come back! Ohog bellowed, trying to salvage the chaos. He tried to catch his tribesmen running from the fray, throwing them back into battle. Come back, you cowards! They're just humans! 
but his voice was drowned out by the piercing shriek of the demons. As the hog turned, ready to base his bar alone, he found one of the demon enemies right above him. The beast raised itself on its hind legs, with its front legs ready to smash right down into Ohog's skull. Ohog stared in horror at the height of the monster. No! he cried, raising his arms to shield him. The monster dropped all its weight onto Ohog, and the world went black. Ohog slowly opened his eyes. He groaned. His head was spinning from the pain. Imprisonment or death, Ark! With a snap, Ohog woke from his confusion. A human warrior stood over him now, with his weapon brandished and ready to slay Ohog should he resist. I yield! Ohog quickly blurted out. A life as a slave would be better than no life at all. If Ohog was lucky, he might even get ransomed back to the tribe. Slowly, Ohog rose from the ground. As he did so, he studied his captor. It was a typical human with feeble-looking joints, with only two legs and a good head shorter than a hog. Was the whole battle a hallucination? Just as he was wondering how the orcs had lost against these puny humans, he heard a bay, one that would continue to haunt his sleep to the end of his days. A hog jumped in fright as he turned to look at the muscular beast that stood behind the human warrior. It was the bottom half of the demon of the battle, its muscular neck rippling as it turned its head at Hohog dejectedly, before deciding instead to inspect the grass patch on the floor. What in the name of gods is that? Hohog asked, nearly frozen in petrification. Who? Nuklevay? The human warrior asked. He's a horse, a bloody splendid one at that. Hey, a horse? Yeah, fine beasts, aren't they? Uh, runs faster than a hare, they do. The man boasted the western nomads found these buggers in some grass plains and domesticated them. Some years back they started trading these beauties with the five kingdoms. The king of Arnland nearly traded his whole damn kingdom for us. We've been using them for just about everything ever since. Ohog slowly digested the information. The horse in front of him truly seemed to be a magnificent beast of burden. One that could carry loads, pull carts, run long distances and push through adversity with greater muscle, bulk, and speed than an orc ever could. And now the human kingdoms had these beasts domesticated. The orc tribes had suddenly lost their competitive edge on the field and... in just about everything, really. The human warrior, noticing Og's interest in the steed, grinned with pride. You're impressed by the horses, huh? He said. Og could do nothing than nod, honestly, speechless. The human grinned wider. Well, you better gather your wits, because elephants are going to blow your mind. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1204 Story number one. To defeat a god. Written by Jeremiah Hellrider. The heavy doors of 10,000-year temple opened with a loud creak, revealing rows of stone, pews, and altars covered in runes. The creature coughed and sneezed at the stale air, trying to breathe in my dusty halls. He looked around himself, examining the stone main room of the temple, seeing the paintings, murals, and statues built in my name. He started to walk across the old carpet on the floor, slowly making his way in front of the altar. After taking a quick glance at one of the statues, he stopped. 
He could be waiting for me to speak, or just further inspecting the large statues watching him from the corners of the temple. He finally took out a glass yellow lamp from his pocket and lit the walls. Now I could see the creature. He had hair on his head like others, but also fashioned a long beard with his dark clothes. Since he had managed to come all this way to one of my many homes, it was obvious that the creature knew I would not fulfill the request of every mortal who would come seeking me. Considering how calm he looked, and the amount of effort he must have taken to find me, I assumed that he was at least a little wise or intelligent. What would it be this time? Eternal life. All the knowledge in the universe. A hundred virgins. Do you think that I am here to ask something? The creature was not very loud, and there was almost a carelessness, a mockery for sure, but a carelessness in each voice. Was he here to challenge me? Now that's not something you see every millennia. This creature might actually be fun after all. I am not here to challenge you, if that's what you think, but that does not mean I am not here to defeat you either. Not here to challenge me, but to defeat me. This was getting interesting. You are a worthless piece of crap. I had been insulted by many mortals. My worthless was not something I'd heard before. That's right, you are nothing. This was getting fun. The creature probably somehow managed to miss the stories of my power and my strength. So I decided to give him a little show. I started to bend the space inside the temple and created a sort of bubble of air for him so that he may survive my little show without suffocating because of his puny mortal lungs. After that, I took the poor thing out of my temple and in seconds brought him to an orbit of a planet in his own solar system, Mars. After making sure the mortal knew where he exactly was, I, with no effort, caused hundreds of nuclear explosions inside the core of the planet giving the mortal just enough time to witness what my world could achieve before the planet completely broke into a thousand shards. Then I once again brought him into my temple. But the mortal was not impressed. He even looked bored. Meh, give me a thousand nuclear missiles, a spaceship, and I can do the same. I once again took him out of the temple, this time bringing him to a black hole 27,000 light years away. Then with my power, I summoned over a million planets from around the galaxy and threw them inside the black hole, letting the mortals see what I could do to the universe. As the space around the black hole started to get dangerous for the mortal, I returned him to the temple. Then he looked even more bored. Uh, if you consider throwing some lifeless rocks into a hole power, then the average garbage man has as much power as you. I was starting to get frustrated. Perhaps the human valued fame and love over others' physical strength. I'd seen some of the creatures before, so I once again took the human and showed him the hundreds of species across the galaxy who spent their days and night worshipping me, building temples and writing songs in my name, fighting wars just so that they could prove who loved me the most. For once, the human actually looked interested. Once I brought him to the temple, he spoke again. Those civilizations I saw were really powerful. He thought those creatures, my slaves' worshippers, were stronger than me. Why would he think that? I finally broke my silence, and in my deepest, scariest, and commanding voice, I said, Human, 
You say I am weak. You say my subjects hold more power compared to me. Then explain yourself. Why would me, a being, I can manipulate every atom and particle across the universe? Who has seen and heard all that has ever been and who could live forever would be weaker than a puny creature such as you? The human for once looked mildly surprised. Perhaps he was expecting me to destroy some more galaxies before speaking. You are weak because you can manipulate, but not create. Not create? I created almost everything in the universe, billions of planets, all my hard work. Nonsense, human, I created the universe. I made your puny bladder from dust, and I put the first life on your planet. You did not create Earth or life on it. You stole it. Steal it from who? I made everything. No, you did not. Since you're coming to the universe, you have not made a single thing that you can call your own. Let's give you an example. Build me a statue. While the human giving orders to me was slightly insulting, I quickly remade one of the statues I had seen my slaves build. A weird stone monster wielding a sword. See, human, I create my own art. No, you stole that statue from one of your slave planets. You recreated what was already made. You did not add anything to it. Or made something new. This was getting stupid. Of course, I could create something new, and I could show it to that damn human. I once again started to manipulate some of the stone inside the temple, and I would turn these humble rock into a glorious... Uh, I, I could not think of anything to make. Only the statues and monuments built by slaves and the life around the universe came to my mind. Why couldn't I think of something that does not exist? My slaves could look at trees and make tree people. Imagine how I would look despite having never seen me. You see, you can't make anything new. You may have dropped the first life on this planet, but you did not shape it. You did not color the flowers on the ground. You did not create the birds in the sky. You just let life evolve and then say that you made it. You did not even make this planet itself. You just saw what all the other planets with life were like, and copied it. Was he right? Life existed around the universe for as long as I remembered. I would just take life from one planet and place it on another that could sustain it, then wait until it evolved into something. No, this is impossible. With all my might, I summoned a four-legged small furry animal from the human's planet. I would show him what life I would create. How I would turn this filthy animal into something that would have a mark of a god. Try placing a tail on it, baby. The human was almost mocking me. Why couldn't I think of something to make the animal better? I could no longer hold the anger inside me. You filthy human! You can't make your puny art, but that doesn't matter because I can still just crush you to death with my fist! This is true power! Prepare to meet your dear... The human was smiling almost laughing. Human, what are you doing? I'm about to end your life. The human finally got a hold of himself and spoke. My entire life I pissed off people. I started annoying people in school, then on the internet. I showed them how they were wrong, weak, ugly, stupid. This was my final goal. To make the most egotistic megalomaniac being out there scream in rage. But, but why? Because... I am the greatest troll who has ever trolled. End of story. 
Story number two. Humans written by Glitchkey. There's a human on the ship. What? There's a human on the ship. Can't be. Why not? What do you mean, why not? There are no humans on the ship or any other. Then how do you explain all this? I don't. That's a mechanic's job. So the ventilation going out exactly mid-trip. We skipped on servicing. The scanners are on the fritz and showing an entire asteroid field and empty. We skipped on servicing. Life support going down. Can't believe that we're even having this stupid conversation. Come on. It's only explanation. No, it isn't. Cutting corners here. Custs there. That's the explanation. Yeah, sure. That explains why in midshipcom somehow managed to relay entirely different orders from what the captain wanted. Weird stuff happens in the deeps of space. Like humans? No, not like humans. And we can't use cargo bay 3 because the exterior airlock has decided to open and close at random. Captain's cheap, but that's getting fixed next stop. Yeah, and the food sequence are refusing to produce anything but the limited brunch menu. Stuck sitting. Just needs a hard power cycle. Sure, no humans here. What about the targeting system being locked in the same point in the empty space for 10 hours a week ago? Not humans. Much. You're hang up about this, man. It's the simplest way to explain how literally every system on this ship is on the fritz. My hang up is if Cap is talk of humans, he's dropping every last one of us in the next stop and getting a new crew. Corners were cut. That is all. Sure, sure. Humans don't exist. Just remember that. Humans don't exist. But superstitions ruin a crew. Keep this to yourself. It's best for everyone. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1205. See me in my office, written by Argus the Cat. David, see me in my office, please. A dull voice of my boss came through the grocery store intercom. I looked up from my post at the backup cash register glanced over the line of four people that I was about to abandon my co-worker April to, stole a brief glance at the plate glass windows and considered fleeing the country, then sighed and put up a registered closed sign. Sorry folks, uh, gotta see the boss. April will take care of you over there, I told them, to a series of moans, one of which came from April herself, along with a pack of gum thrown at my head. As I made my way back through the aisles of canned goods, display stacks of soda and oddly diagonal dairy section. I wondered to myself what I was going to get lumbered at for today. Had I forgotten anything recently? I didn't think so, but that's the sort of point of forgetting things. Oh, oh, fuck! Was it the stockroom? That bloody stock! Every week, someone got told to organize the stockroom at the dumbest possible time. No matter what we did, it was always too disorganized in there. Please, not the stockroom. I begged whatever the gods were listening as I wove through the back area towards the office. Pushing open the door, I saw my boss sitting at his desk. He was a nice guy, honestly. Kind of tall, kind of thin, kind of flat hair, kind of Clark Kenty glasses. Really, the only thing that ever made him stand out was his mood was always immediately identifiable. Like, blatantly obvious in a rather hard-to-describe way. Today, I noticed as I walked in, he was worried. Hey, boss. David, good. Have a seat, he said in a tone of voice that did not make it sound good. I sat. Am I getting laid off? You look like you have to tell someone you just ran over the dog. This was not a thing you normally say to your boss, but I am, at best, a wise ass, and at worst, physically unable to not say something snarky. 
No, no, no layoffs. Uh, they're just uh, something I have to tell you. He sighed, standing from his desk and pacing around the office. Occasionally, he would disappear behind one of the many potted plants before I caught sight of him again. David, um, you've been working here for three years now, yes? I was now seriously wondering where this was going. Yeah, I guess. Uh, about this time three years ago was when you hired me, though I, I didn't mark the date. It was today, he said, with a sheer finality that made me wonder if he just knew that, or if he'd been browsing my hiring documents to make himself look mysterious earlier. David, he said, after a suitable dramatic pause, there is something you need to know uh, about me. Awkward conversations. Boss, I don't care if you're gay, can I get back up front? There was a line. He didn't blink at my snark. It was one of the reasons I liked working here, and my greatest personal challenge was making him laugh someday. I'd settle for a snicker or a giggle, a chortle. I didn't really know the laughter rankings. He continued as if I hadn't said anything. David, I'm not human. Okay, so um, can I back up front? There's a line. He blinked. Ah, reaction. I was making progress. I'm serious, David. There are things I've never told you about. I cut him off. Yeah, I know. Now, can I go? It's really busy up there. The boss stared at me. I'm really not joking. I've been keeping uh, lots of secrets from you, from all of my employees and I. The snark kicked in again. Boss, you're a great employer and kind of a nice guy too. But, uh, and I say this with love, you're the worst at keeping secrets. But I figured out something was odd like a uh, day three. It's fine. Don't worry. He looked. A second to collect his thoughts. Uh, okay, well, um, his eyes lit up, and he seemed to remember the point he was going for. The danger! I had to warn you, after all this time, that you might be in terrible... Yep, I know about that too, it's fine, don't worry. I put this out in my best dull and bored tone, even though inside I'd begun to laugh my ass off. Keeping a straight face was never something I was really good at. I'd always overreact and blow my cover, but today I just had to keep it together long enough for this to play out. He spluttered for a long moment, before shouting and waving his hands, knocking the potted plant, swinging on its chain. Don't worry, you have no idea what sort of terrors are lurking at the edge of... Again, boss, it's fine. I spoke calmly over him, interrupting his ramblings. I used my first paycheck to buy a comically large gun. I used my next, like, six paychecks to buy silver and pay a crazy guy who lives in the woods to make bullets out of it. He threw in some raccoon jerky with them, too. I, I guess that's fine. But, um, well, uh, okay, maybe you're okay, but I wanted to break this to your co-workers today, and they are... No, they know too. April cashed in a favor with one of the Wiccan friends, and she's been warding the building. A lot of us have, uh, like, uh, three different flexible cursors set up and ready to finish in the stockroom. If something goes wrong, uh, we're, we're fine. What? How did you know about this? How do you know about this? Boss, again... I say this with love, but in addition to being an absolute shit at keeping secrets, you are also totally oblivious to everything. I mean, come on, every week you tell us to organize the stockroom you never go into. Last month, Jeremy dropped a hammer on a vampire lord that came in and was, um... He broke out in an incredulous stare and with another bout of yelling, Master Tavalak had been threatening my life for years. He's one of the reasons I'm hiding. How did you... He ignored one of those wet floor sides. He fell on his ass, and Jeremy hit him with the hammer. But a sledgehammer. And you, and, and he, but, but, but I, um... He slumped down in his chair. Well, he puffed out. 
Is there anything else relative to my life and the safety of my employees that I should know about? Because clearly you are more on top of this than I am. And how are you so calm about all of this anyway? I laughed. I couldn't help it. I'd been waiting for this conversation for three years. I'd finally got to just relax and let it happen. It was amazing. You know what? This job is the best fucking thing ever to happen to me. I'm a second generation nerd raised on a childhood of Lord of the Rings and Doctor Who. And now my daily work environment is the best summed up as an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Last week, all the employees that were here early stocking the shelves were trapped in some kind of dream world. Next week, who knows? He slumped even further into his chair. It was actually kind of interesting to watch someone who was possibly from outside reality itself watch their worldview come crashing down around them. You escaped from Nifon, the dreaming dark. Are you sure you're entirely human? I laughed hard, pausing to get my breath before answering. <laughs> yeah, oh, um, my job is a non-stop adventure and I might die, but I absolutely don't care. Because I'm getting paid to have conversations with gargoyles and magical robots, and it's so cool! I mean, come on! How many places in town could I get hired at where people I worked with would have an honest, legitimate betting pool about what species their boss actually is? You have a... Yeah, I have $50 in you being a god of some sort, by the way. April thinks you're a Time Lord, since the store is the wrong size inside. Jeremy thinks that you're some kind of ancestor spirit. One of the new girls is convinced you're a Volon. But I'm pretty sure we don't do that level of sci-fi, so she got good odds. I'm not judging, though. He stared at me, his expression for once unreadable. David, he stated in the calmest voice that I've ever heard, go back to work. I got up without saying anything, a ferocious grin on my face. I walked out, ducking potted plants on the way. As I shut the door, I paused for a second to take a breath. Behind me, in his office, the boss laughed. End of story. Story number two. Craftsmanship written by Hidden Fox. An elvish bullet is truly a sight to behold. Each one, custom made, coals of ivory, delicately etched, shaped, and molded into a proper shape. Golden inlays in a pattern unique to the artisan cover the bullet. Some patterns border on the molecular. The bullet is then covered in a wash of quicksilver and then consecrated oils. Air channels are then delicately carved in specific patterns based off the bullet's purpose. Long-range bullets have winding spirals that fanned out, keeping the bullet in the air longer and giving an unparalleled accuracy. The artisan will then place the bullet aside and begin to work on the cartridge. Typically of silver make, the cartridge is inlaid with a fine jet. The jet is placed in patterns complementing the bullet's design. The artisan will then measure out the exact amount of specific powders needed to create the optimal propellant. The artisan will then add the primer. The primers are essentially the artisan's signature, with every artisan using their own unique mixtures of chemicals. The artisan will then carefully assemble the round, creating a work of art. The round will be singularly packed and then sent off to the client that ordered it. A master artisan can produce upwards of 30 rounds per day. Human bullets are sold in bulk. End of story.